This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Happy Thursday. It's Thursday. You've got it right today. It's uh, I'm fi- I've you're finally caught, in I've, sync. I've caught up with the week. Yes, you miss a Monday and you think I missed a Monday and a Tuesday, and then you think, holy cow, what's happening to this week? Hey, it's Thursday, and it's the day we're going to be uh, talking Donald Trump's cabinet. Um, you mean like in his kitchen? Mm-hmm. He's got or- a great new cat kitchen cabinet set. They redecorated oak. No, oh, it's uh, it's a faux. It's a faux. It's a facade. What's it called? It's a. It's got a veneer. Well, I think he's doing that so that you know he wants to show that he can save money too, just like the rest of us. Yeah, that's not happening. No, because Donald Trump is not a politician. Many are questioning his picks in his cabinet, and in the near future, in the next few days. When is it? When did we decide that was next week? Next week. Six of his cabinet members go under the gun and the knife. On the same day. Boom, 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 boom. They just start getting hammered by congressional hearings. But today's guest is going to talk to us about the fact that Donald Trump's not the first non-politician to become president. Even Eisenhower, as of recently, or uh, Hoover, these people didn't have any political history and yet became president. And interestingly... Ike chose a very similar cabinet to Trump, and Trump so chose a similar cabinet to what Ike put in. Lots of bi- millionaires. Mm. Now it's billionaires. Right. And some generals. So Ike's – or uh, Eisenhower's slogan was, I like Ike. Uh-huh. What will it be for Trump? I like I, – See I, what I did there? I want – Pretty good, huh? I want Don. I want Don. Don. No. I I done one done, <laughs> I done one done. No, it won't be that. No. Pretty sure that won't be it. it it'll be I want to be like Trump. Just well, Trump I mean, it. Normally, your slogan needs to be short and make America great again. It's kind of a longer sort yeah, of. That is that is. So that means the next time around, it'll say, "See, I made America great again." He'll and he'll point those out. That'll be how he runs. It. See, that's what it'll be. Just Trump it. He'll, he'll save money on uh, signs. Mm-hmm. You just have to put a little sticker up there. Except people keep stealing. It'll signs. just say, I told you so. That's true. Neener, neener. It's great. Take that, America. Uh, so we will be talking about the creation of a cabinet when you're not a politician. And we've got a great uh, guest with an incredibly um, well-researched background. And you'll be amazed. And by the way, Ike turned out to be a fairly popular and I think successful president. So maybe there's hope. There's hope in them there hills. Uh, We will get to all that fun, plus some other crazy stuff. we got to talk eventually about Donald ticking off the spies of the world. Yeah. It doesn't seem smart. Mama said don't play with the spies. Yeah. You kind of need them on your side. Yeah, don't tick them off. But Donald keeps playing that way. So we'll get to all that fun, plus, of course, uh, some audio. uh, We've got to be playing more audio of Chuck Schumer. Because he's now Chuck. He, <laughs> and by the way, Chuck. So Chuck took uh, Reed's place. Yes. And many say 
that Trump and Schumer are probably better friends than Paul Ryan and Trump. Mm. They're New York guys. Right. They know each other. They're both New York liberals. It works. Trump has voted for Schumer more than, you know, he's (laughs) voted for any other person. Right. So anyway, uh, we'll get to that. We'll have some uh, fun audio from Chuck Schumer as well as Mike Pence, who seems to be the the great cleanup crew for Donald Trump. I, I wish he could uh, address the camera and not seem like he's reading the uh, the script. Yeah, boy, yeah. He just like goes into like this this dead stare and starts repeating yeah. the. Party I am line. a robot, but yeah. you know what? That's politics, right there. You got to have your talking. I know. Just you know, loosen up a little bit. Yeah. You won. You don't have to do this all the time. <laughs> yeah, but they're not in yet. I think everything's going to change the minute they actually are sworn in. Right. Because right now it's like they're just trying well, to run out we'll of the Well, but Pence says they're going to go right to the Oval Office and start making making changes. I believe that. Totally believe it. Yeah. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? U.S. intelligence agencies have found conclusive evidence that Russia provided hacked documents for the national uh, from the De- National Democratic Na- uh, Committee to WikiLeaks via a third-party Reuters reports. The news agency reportedly interviewed three U.S. officials with knowledge of the situation who contend that uh, who contend that intelligence agencies obtained the evidence of the Kremlin's role in the wake of the November election, not before months earlier. Authorities had concluded that Russia had directed the hacking, but it had not been clear if it had played a bigger role in the release of the leaked information. The report comes as U.S. intelligence officials head to Capitol Hill today to testify before a special Senate hearing about the alleged hacking. An intelligence report on the issue will be presented to Obama on Thursday and to Trump on Friday. Mm. So that's going to happen the rest of the week. Congressional Republicans on Wednesday launched their long-promised effort to dismantle the Affordable Care Act, even as they acknowledge that they may need several months to develop a replacement along conservative lines, signifying how enormous a priority the issue is for incoming in, the incoming administration. Vice President Mike, or Vice President-elect, excuse me, Mike Pence met privately to discuss it with House and Senate Republicans. He offered no details afterwards about what a new, what a new health law might look like but vowed to unwind the existing one through a mixture of executive actions and legislation. Meanwhile, President Obama made a rare Capitol Hill appearance. It was funny. They're both walking through the same hallways. Isn't you see that the same crazy? Plants. Yeah, it's kind of... I wonder if there's coordination. But I, what I wonder is if Obama spent more time like he is now up on the Hill... Yeah. He actually, he actually brought that up in Maybe the we wouldn't be in the situation to repeal Obama. He says, if I made a better argument for this, this might, we might not be in this situation. Yeah. He, he mentioned that in their meeting. He urged members of his party not to help the GOP devise a new health care law. Don't help them. It's By their, the way. It's their job. Let them. We have a law. Let them figure it out if they want to. Well, know. and isn't that the exact same thing the senator said uh-huh. about Obama? Don't help him. We're going to stall everything he does. Yeah. So there it's we just go. the same. Here we go. A New York City commuter train derailed in Brooklyn on Wednesday morning during rush hour, injuring more than 100 of the estimated 600 people aboard. The nature of the injuries is not yet known, but none of them reportedly were life-threatening. The train went off the tracks at Atlantic Terminal, which is said to be one of New York's busiest stations as it connects commuters to nine subway lines. Wow. The New York Post reported the train derailed on track six when it slammed into a bumper block and sent the lead car through a wall. The incident remains under investigation. Mm. And finally, NASA is planning two missions to asteroids in the early 2020s to explore the solar system's origins. The space agency announced Wednesday the first mission, Lucy, is stated to head for the Trojan asteroid in Jupiter's orbit in 2021. The asteroid is thought to be from the solar system's earliest days. Then in 2023, the Psyche mission will launch 
De, uh, destined for what NASA describes as a giant metal asteroid called Psyche 16, which is nearly three times further away from the sun than the Earth. Wow. Lucy, <laughs> you got some explaining to do. Yeah. One of the greatest TV shows ever. Those guys. She raised me. Really? Yeah. Well, Ethel did. Oh. Lucy's always just going crazy. She was a career woman. She was busy. She was a busy career woman. Yeah. Uh, By the way, we will be talking about, I had a a life-changing read. I read something that we will be talking about in hour number two of this program Mm. about women being pregnant at work. Yeah. It it was mind-blowing. I thought you were going to say the operator's guide for your TV. No. That could be life-changing. I do need to listen, apparently read the operator's guide to my earphones mm. because I dialed my wife. My Actually, I didn't. My earphones dialed my wife okay. 10 times yesterday. During the show? All day. All day long. Interesting. Which is scary. Are they vo- their voice activated? No, no. Something's wrong with them. Okay. I'm sending them back. It's like Hal from 2001. Pardon? Hal? Who? Hal who? I'm sorry, Matt. Oh. I'm afraid I can't let you do that. It's a big oh, computer. That bugs me. Mm. That bugs me. Um, yeah. I. What you, what you were talking about something very important before that. You were. You were talking about your... The, the, Even before that. Me? Mm-hmm. NASA? NASA. We need to talk to uh, Pluto. If you can get him. He's mad. So many don't know that we have a, a guest... Um, Pluto. What was his first name? Mo. Mo. Maurice. Maurice. Yeah. We call him Mo. That's right. That's why he's mad at me. Mo Pluto um, is a guest we have on the show regularly to talk about you know anything extraterrestrial, anything on anything above you know our atmosphere. He's our universal correspondent. But we've offended him a few times. Plus, he's upped his booking rate. Mm. Oh, really? Yeah. He has a rate. Yeah. We have a budget. He's a dwarf planet. Don't say that. Do they have a rate? He could be listening right now. But he's not a real planet. He's a dwarf planet. Scientists classified him that way. Right. And it's uh, he didn't meet certain right. you know, stipulations on you know, being included as a planet. He's so, actually kind of sensitive about it. If you don't bring it up, it's well, no Well, I know, but we, gotta, we, we tell the truth here. You like to label people is what you're saying or planets. Well, I just I just state the labels given by, you know, people with more knowledge than I have. Just don't think it's necessary. Anyway, someday we will talk with Mo Pluto, a dwarf planet, about exploring asteroids or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love NASA. We got to do that. Um, NASA ha- can't get off the ground. They have to ship our astronauts to Russia to get off the ground. So maybe they should focus on that first. That's a great thing. Just a thought. But just so everyone knows, NASA's not even going to be talked about for the next 90 days Yeah, because it's all about Obamacare. That's right. Everybody's talking Obamacare. Uh, Paul Ryan, he, you know, he's going to work on repealing Obamacare. We are starting today on our work to deliver relief to Americans struggling under Obamacare. We must remember this. This law has failed. Americans are struggling. Then once we repeal this law... We need to make sure that there is a stable transition to a truly patient-centered system. We want every American to have access to quality, affordable health coverage. See? Hmm. 
And a lot of people have been having access that hadn't had access before. Yeah. So you you can't just repeal it because then all of a sudden you're going to make everyone sick. We Chuck have Schumer. a great deal of optimism that the good things that have happened in ACA are going to stay and that our Republican colleagues don't quite know what to do. They're like the dog who caught the bus. They can repeal, but they have nothing to put in its place. Republicans are plotting and soon will be executing a full-scale assault on the three pillars that support the American health care system, the Affordable Care Act, Medicare, and Medicaid. The Republican plan to cut health care wouldn't make America great again. It would make America sick again. Whoa. Now, one of the Republicans' tactics they're, they're thinking about is, say, you, you throw out a bill, say, in late February, saying, okay, we're, we're repealing this. But it's a two-year rollout until the program right. ends. Over those two years, they go, okay, Democrats, what do you want in this plan? Yeah. And then when the, if the Democrats don't help them, then it's the Democrats' fault that this failed. Well, and then they, they institute everything to begin after the midterm elections. Right, because you don't want to get hit. You do not want to have yeah. all your bills coming in like they did with Clinton. There's, Hillary Clinton. <laughs> there's 20 million people who, have, uh, who are on Obamacare. And yeah. if you take that away from them, they're going to say, you know, start blaming people yeah. for who took this away. Well, the Republicans took it away, but the Republicans are going to blame the Democrats right. for not helping. So you actually took it. And just that's what now, it turns do you into think a mess. anybody learned their lesson? No, because if now what's going to happen, the Republicans are going to repeal, but they're still they're going to have to keep certain things on there. Like your children can stay on your insurance. Yeah. Well, they cause... did say in their meetings yesterday, the Republican uh, uh, Paul Ryan said that it was discussed and the things that people like will be part of okay. the next plan. The irony of this entire thing is that could have all been implemented early on 20 years ago, you mean, 15 years ago. These are laws that could have been During passed. the 40-plus times Republicans yeah. tried to repeal Obamacare? Exactly. So instead of just repealing it, maybe fix it since they're just going to put mm-hmm. their own plan in? Right. Something the president has said multiple times? If but you don't like it, try to fix it. Don't it's try a great to ruin it. metaphor. It's a dog that caught the bus. Yeah. And now you've got a bunch of, you know, congressmen hanging onto the bus. But this bus is going about 90 miles an hour, <laughs> and it ain't pretty. Um, so that's, that's actually really good news. We have to talk about the swearing in. I can't remember if we, we talked about it off air. What? But there was oh, a moment. The, the, the boy? With Congressman Ryan Marshall's son. <laughs> yeah. That was, it was just hilarious. Uh, Congress, or, um. Uh, what's his name? Paul, Paul Ryan. Ryan swearing in this congressman, and yeah. they always have a family member hold the Bible, and apparently that was this teenage son. Right. And then they need to take a picture. And this son, in the middle of the picture, everyone's smiling pretty. You have... You it has to be a nice photo, yeah. yes. You have the Speaker of the House right yeah. there, and this teenage kid is trying to dab. Yeah. Which, Which basically you, you duck your head, cross it across your face. Kind of looks like you're cross doing your that arm, like you're Dracula sneezing, sneeze yeah. thing. or like yeah. you're sneezing in your elbow. Um, yeah. And Paul Ryan keeps looking at him like, "What are you doing?" This what has been popularized by Cam Newton, a quarterback yeah. in the NFL. He scores a touchdown and he dabs or whatever. It's kind of dumb. This is why you don't bring your kids. <laughs> and and Paul Ryan looks over at this kid and he, "Are you going to sneeze? What's going on?" <laughs> like I, I, I don't know if he quite understood what he was no, doing. No, I think he was like, I think he, you could hear him say, "Do you want to put your arm down? You want to put your arm now, down?" Now, if he did a move called the discount double check, 
Ooh, what's that? Which is what Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback for the Green Bay oh, Packers, yeah. does. Cool. Paul Ryan's from Wisconsin. He would recognize what that touchdown celebration now, was. Now, that's where he crosses his belt or something. Yeah, he it? does this like belt thing across his waist with his hands. And, and Paul Ryan would go, oh, yeah, yeah, I see that. Oh, yeah, he's but, doing the discount double check. But he does this other thing that another NFL quarterback does, and he's completely lost. And so there was kind of that thing. But then the next day, the congressman that was being sworn in uh, sent a tweet to uh, Paul Ryan saying that he had grounded his son over this grounded. ridiculous thing that he did. I don't think Paul Ryan knows what a sneeze is. He's never sneezed. Some people don't sneeze. He doesn't know what the dab is. But honestly, you just wouldn't think that this would be happening there. In a way, and Paul Ryan's probably an astute politician that knows, like he doesn't want this kid putting... Um, or what are the bunny ears over his head? Right. You know, he doesn't want to be doing some trick in the photo. Do people still do that? Well, bunny ears? I didn't know people did dabbing in the middle of a really important photo for your dad. How rude. Can you imagine that drive home? The ride home with dad from his swearing in session? You had one job. Are you kidding me? Give me your phone. Give me your phone. You are not going to use your phone for the next year. You're so disappointing. It's hard growing up, politician's son. Well, we will take a break. When we come back, we will answer the riddle. Tell me this. What does Zachary Taylor, Ulysses S. Grant, Herbert Hoover, and Dwight Eisenhower all have in common? Stick with us. We'll uh, fill you in on it because Donald Trump's following the same line. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. In this week uh, since the election, in the week since the election, President-elect Donald Trump has been working to fill positions in his cabinet. And we talked about the fact that next week the Senate hearings will begin for six of his cabinet members. A lot of people have been, you know, frustrated or commenting on the fact that none of these people are career politicians. A lot of his cabinet leaders are billionaires. You know, they're ex they're excellent and experts at what they do in their area, but that doesn't mean they'll be a great Secretary of State, right? Just because they ran ExxonMobil. However, um our guest today is uh has been doing some pretty interesting research and has also written an article that uh that talks about the impact that um our cabinet member selections have uh, he wrote an article, How One Political Outsider Picked a Cabinet, and I asked before the break what Zachary Taylor, Ulysses S. Grant, Herbert Hoover, and Dwight D. Eisenhower all have in common, along with Donald Trump. Well, none of them were elected um, – when they were elected, none of them were previously or had previously held any political offices. So these are these are kind of insiders or outsiders that are now on the inside – and we wanted to talk to uh, David Stebbin. Dr. David Stebbin teaches American legal history in the Moritz College of Law and modern U.S. political history at, at The Ohio State University History Department. Dr. Stebbin, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. I thought that this was a really interesting um, article because we hear so much backlash about the billionaires that Donald Trump is bringing in and um, – 
some, maybe even to some degree the lack of diversity compared to what uh, President Obama had in his cabinet. But you you make a really excellent point that, you know, even as just Dwight Eisenhower, as of recently, he he didn't he wasn't an insider politically. He was a general. That's right. And he wasn't very impressed by people whose careers were entirely in politics. Which is, I think, I mean, that echoes, right, what Donald Trump says. He, he was he, – uh, what I read that uh, you had written was Ike was impressed with people that had succeeded in their field, and he believed they could bring those skills to, to the cabinet. Right. And he also saw what he was doing as a kind of corrective because in the Roosevelt and Truman presidencies that came before his, they were the cabinets were filled with a lot of people who had been in politics for a long time. And he felt that the talents of leading people in the private sector, if you want to call it that, of the world's outside of government, hadn't been sufficiently used that mm. could be helpful. Yeah. Um, he uh, apparently, Eisenhower was uh, touted by the press, his cabinet as, as having eight millionaires and a plumber. And um, well, what, what was that? They, they also then were down on him because he was just hiring millionaires. Well, that's right. Millionaires in the 50s are sort of what billionaires are today. Right. You know, the, if there's been inflation and so on. But the point was that many people felt that a cabinet of such wealthy people would not really understand the concerns of ordinary Americans. But Eisenhower had this distinction in his mind. He wasn't really attracted to or impressed by people who had grown up rich. He was impressed by people who had been very successful and had made a lot of money as part of that success. And so a lot of the people in his cabinet hadn't necessarily started out in millionaire families, but had, by virtue of doing a great job at, at something else, become wealthy. And he, that impressed him. In hmm. other words, he felt that that was a sign of success in America and that the president's cabinet ought to be filled with successful people. Do you think um, in all of your research, and can you see uh, evidence of it, that is there an advantage to being – I mean, I, it, and because it's not like Eisenhower – he was an outsider, but he was still a general that understood the, the, the massive bureaucracy of government. But he also understood that there's a political force at play. And he brought in his political playmaker in Nixon, right? Well, that's right. When he was nominated, it, the party split almost down the middle between him and Ohio Senator Robert Taft. And Taft was the preferred choice of most Republicans in Congress, the Republican establishment. And so Eisenhower was told, you must pick a running mate who calms those folks down, who's acceptable to them, and someone who's younger than you are, because like Donald Trump, Dwight Eisenhower was older. He was in his late 60s uh, by the time he finished his presidency, actually 70 by the time he left the White House, which was old in those days. Donald Trump, of course, is 70 now. And so he picked the younger uh, Richard Nixon, who was in the U.S. Senate, had been in the House, and who was known and liked by... Republican partisans and professional politicians. But Eisenhower didn't know him. Hmm. And so it created a kind of awkward relationship in the sense that they came from completely different worlds. 
And so it was a challenge for them to develop a real rapport. Does it parallel Mike Pence? I mean, it seems like Mike Pence was there to fill that a similar role. Absolutely. I think I've met Governor Pence. He visited Columbus in the fall, and I had a chance to chat with him briefly. And what I was struck by was how easygoing and friendly mm. he was. He's a native Midwesterner from yeah. Indiana. And the part of the, and Eisenhower was a native Midwesterner, right, from Kansas. The problem with Richard Nixon was there was a kind of personal intensity to him. He was not a relaxing person to be <laughs> around, and he was not a warm and friendly guy with everyone. And so, uh, as a matter of fact, the first question Eisenhower asked about Nixon when then-Governor Dewey of New York said, well, Nixon's the choice of the party leaders, Eisenhower asked, well, who are his friends? And was taken aback when Dewey replied, Nixon has no friends. Oh, boy. Whereas Mike Pence is a very likable guy. Yeah. Everyone says, that even the people who disagree with him on issues, say that he's a friendly person. And so the, I think in terms of personality, uh, because Pence has these good people skills, he's been able to develop more of a rapport with Donald Trump. Uh, he's also doesn't come across as personally ambitious hmm. in the way that Richard Nixon did. In other words, Nixon was viewed as someone who had risen high in the party quickly and was a very ambitious guy in a hurry, whereas Mike Pence, again, seems well-suited temperamentally to the role of self-effacing number two. Hmm. And so he does, Pence does fulfill the same role, you know, sort of Trump's, emissary to Republicans in Congress, and, and so on. But he doesn't, uh, so far anyway, seem to put off Trump in the ways that Nixon sometimes put off. Do you, do you sense that, um, because it does seem like Pence is going to be the cleanup man, <laughs> that Trump will make a statement, but then uh, it seems like uh, Vice President-elect Pence will then go in and try to make it right or make it work or or smooth it over because I guess like Eisenhower, there is a divide um, even in the Republican Party with, and feelings about what's going on with Trump. Do you, do you think uh, Pence will be able to smooth things over? I mean, because Trump leaves a huge wake. Right. Well, it helps to, be, to understand that one of the things you learn in politics is ways of tactfully expressing Mm-hmm. that you don't necessarily learn as much if you're in the private sector. Right. Mayor Bloomberg of New York was ended his terms as mayor, highly regarded. But when he first ran, he irritated a lot of people because he made remarks that were perceived to be, as a candidate, kind of insensitive, because he was completely inexperienced with running for public office. Right. And so on. But he got better at it. And one possible trajectory for Donald Trump is that he will learn from Mike Pence, who has had years in public life, how to express himself somewhat more tactfully. Mm. And we'll see. So one cleanup function for Mike Pence, especially early on, maybe just clarifying what Donald Trump really meant to say. Mm. And saying right. it in a different way. Correct. But that, that people will hear. And there's also the regional difference. Native New Yorkers tend to be very direct. Yeah. And Midwesterners are often all about indirection, right? In other words, they don't want to offend anyone uh, or provoke anyone. It's a, it's, 
an emphasis on getting along with people over the long run. And so Mike Pence has, seems to have those skills. And so, uh, so there, even, if, even if there's nothing else to clean up, I suspect that Mike Pence will help clarify what Donald Trump really meant to say yeah yeah well and i and he'll and it seems like too he'll be able to go up on the hill and and get some of these get some work done get some uh, maybe a better relationship between the different um, branches of government is one thing i noticed that was it seemed like a pretty big difference um eisenhower having been a general for pretty much all of his career minus two years as columbia president of columbia um it seems like he he was intent, intentionally not bringing on a lot of generals into his cabinet. Donald Trump has has brought in quite a few. Right. Well, and Donald Trump has no military background whatsoever. Right. Maybe that makes sense, right? Right. Well, it, the concern about President Eisenhower, his election, was would it upset the proper balance between the military and civilian government because the commander-in-chief – of the armed forces is a civilian, the president, and that's intended to symbolize civilian control over the military. But a career military man elected president made people wonder, well, you know, would Eisenhower think of himself as a civilian leader uh, rather than a military one? And, And that two years at Columbia, one of the things it did was it got him out of a uniform, into a business suit, into a civilian context. Hmm. And so that helped him. So the challenge for Donald Trump in this area is different. He is viewed as having no real background in military and national security matters. And so hiring a larger than number uh, than usual group of military officers to advise him in various ways in a way makes sense, Mm. right? The question is, do they, again, will this civilian government that oversees the military Will the relationship with the military be somehow made more difficult if you have senior military people in civilian jobs? And we'll find out, right? And so it's a uh, there were actually a fair number of senior military people in the Eisenhower administration, but they tended not to be in the cabinet. They tended to work in various positions in the White House, like the Red Cross over the Red Cross, too. I mean, and it's I, I mean, I guess every president is so different, but it is nice to have. You know, some template that we can see how other non-political, uh, non-elected um, people uh, or candidates, how, how they handle their cabinet uh, building. We're speaking with Dr. David Stebbin, and he's walking us through an article, How One Political Outsider Picked a Cabinet. We'll be putting that up on our Twitter feed, at Dr. Matt Show. And we'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion, talk about the diversity of this cabinet. And also, we kind of throw all of Trump's cabinet as being business people, but it's a pretty it's a pretty diverse business coalition. I mean, you got everything from a Hollywood producer on staff to an orthopedic surgeon and a banker and a director of pediatric neurosurgery. Pretty interesting little mix. Does it matter? Stick with us. We'll find out. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you lead a healthier, happier life.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, with no political experience, how will Trump select his cabinet members? Well, maybe the best way to to learn is to go back into history and remember Zachary Taylor, Ulysses S. Grant, Herbert Hoover, and Dwight D. Eisenhower, all very similar. Didn't have um, necessarily the political experience, but they they did have a strong career that that may have influenced deeply and did influence deeply um, how they organized their cabinet. Joining us is Dr. David Stebbin. He is a professor that teaches American legal history in the Moritz College of Law and modern U.S. political history in the, in the Ohio State University's history department. And uh, Dr. Stebbin, thank you again for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. This is, um, I mean, you can't just chalk it up and say the person's not, hasn't had an elected office and they, they, because they're not going to be able to create a good cabinet. Eisenhower, overall, how did his cabinet do? Well, it was, the administration as a whole was a success. Uh, In other words, his average approval rating over eight years as president was two-thirds. Wow. 67%, right, which most presidents... Probably one of the best, right? Yeah. Right. And... The cabinet met weekly. In other words, he relied on it heavily. He was a delegator. He came out of the military where there are orderly chains of command. And his message to his various cabinet secretaries was, I want you to run your department, and you will come to the weekly cabinet meeting with things that you think the larger group needs to resolve. But basically, I want you to deal with these things. And he also, including defense, even though he had this military background, mm. he told his secretary of defense, I'm not going to run your department, you run it. So, so if the test is how well did the cabinet serve the president and how successful was the administration, the Eisenhower model worked reasonably well. Not all of his choices worked out. Uh, his defense secretary, Charles Wilson, who had been the head of General Motors, proved to be... Uh, not the most effective at controlling the expansion of the Defense Department and mm. budget and so on. Eisenhower was kind of disappointed, and he went through several def- defense secretaries. That was probably the single cabinet slot he had the most trouble with. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, ironically, he's the most skilled in it. Correct. And it could be that he was the most exacting in terms of his expectations because mm. he knew so much. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, And some of them, uh, were successful in the sense that they worked hard and did a good job, but were not tactful. Hmm. Uh, Eisenhower's Secretary of Agriculture, Ezra Taft Benson. Yeah. By the way, an, um, a Mormon, LDS. Correct. A yeah. major figure in the Mormon church. Right. He irritated farmers uh, by talking in rather strident terms about the need to get the federal government out of subsidizing farmers. Now, the Farm Price Supports Program was there every year. He was Secretary of Agriculture. Yeah. He administered it and so on. But he had this philosophy that in the long run, the government ought to get out of the business of subsidizing farmers. And that long-term vision was jarring to many farmers, that, yeah. Republicans. Huh. So he eventually left after 1958, you know, he didn't serve the whole eight years because he drove some farm supporters away, right? So there were some disappointments. Right. But on the whole, uh, Eisenhower's cabinet choices served effectively, were broadly popular, 
and as was the administration as a whole. It, it took them getting used to. Mm. In other words, could a group of people who mostly hadn't been in professional politics know enough about government to do a good job? And by the way, the other people you mentioned who came from the outside, two things to keep in mind about them. One is the modern presidency didn't exist mm. until the 30s and 40s. Right. And so Eisenhower is really the only person who's come from the outside since the modern presidency was created. And also those earlier three were not generally viewed as successful hmm. as president. So Eisenhower is also the only version from the outside who succeeded. So uh, he is an interesting uh, example for the Trump folks to consider. Uh, by the way, Eisenhower was also someone who wanted to broaden the party's appeal. And Trump is similar in that regard. Yeah. Well, so and apparently on. he did it. I mean, uh, Eisenhower, a, a 60, whatever, 7 percent approval rating is unbelievable. It's also it seems like for Trump right now, there is almost a mandate. And that's never. No, it's not a mandate. Uh, 50 percent of the country, let's say 40 percent of the country are saying, yeah, stir it up, drain the swamp. So it's almost like it's it would be okay. People might tolerate a little uh, inability to be smooth in communicating it as long as they get results. Well, that's right. The federal government, in particular, and Congress especially, is viewed as unproductive now. And so, one of the appeals of people in the business world is the view that they get things done, right? And so, if uh, Donald Trump is effective in getting things done and getting Congress to be more productive and the government to be more productive, I think people will be pleased. Uh, it, the question is sort of, the, the previous eight years, there's been this tension between Democrats and Republicans fighting with each other, and that will continue to some degree. Right. The really interesting question is, will Republicans also fight with each other? Uh, will people in the Trump White House and Republican members of Congress, sometimes who are on different pages, fight a lot with each other. And so that could create more gridlock rather than less. So we'll find out. It's hard to know. Yeah. Eisenhower had great consensus-building qualities. Even people who didn't vote for him respected him, liked him. And so he's the last person to serve as president who was viewed favorably by when he was elected by a majority of Republicans and Democrats. Hmm. He, so, and that's not Donald Trump. It, he, right? In other words, he's a more polarizing figure. Oh, yeah. It, it, it almost seems like, and I, I don't know, I'm not the historian, that, but Eisenhower had kind of an inherent goodwill of the people. They trusted, the people trusted him, even if politically they weren't with him. Um, in a weird way with Trump, it feels like Half the people don't even most of the people maybe don't trust him, but they but Trump has an ability to actually go directly to the people. So he it's was Eisenhower as as effective at communicating his his message his way as maybe Trump was at just kind of going around the press to get the message out to people. Well, the Eisenhower campaign pioneered short, clear, effective television Eisenhower Answers America. Mm -hmm. And he was very good in that format. In other words, he was not good, terribly good, at giving a speech. He was not the most articulate 
were eloquent when he had to give a long address. He could do it, but it was an effort. It did not come naturally to him. The contrast with Ronald Reagan is instructive. Wow. Reagan had natural gifts as a communicator that being in uh, Hollywood and radio and television sort of enhanced. Eisenhower was not a natural public speaker, but he, in sort of short bursts, was very effective and likable uh, through the media. Hmm. Donald Trump comes from the media capital. Yeah. And he has, no, he has spent much of his career attracting media attention because he believed that would be good for his business. And he's very good at that. Uh, and so he, it's a different road to being effective with the media than, than Ronald Reagan's, but it has certainly been uh, an effective uh, road for Donald Trump. So I think, that, I think Donald Trump has to decide how much he cares about trying to unite the country because then how you communicate with the people is affected by that, and how much he wants to get a certain agenda passed, which might not be all that unifying in right. the short run. And those are different. They, they call for different strategies. One of the things I'm noticing um, from your article about Donald Trump is um, we just kind of chalk everyone up to a business. You know, they're just he just hired a lot of business people for his cabinet, but Overall, I mean, these these people have a variety, like an incredible variety of of background, everything from, um, you know, uh, ExxonMobil CEO, Hollywood producer, pediatric neurosurgeon, orthopedic surgeon, restaurateur, um, worldwide world wrestling entertainment. So is, but his diversity, he doesn't he doesn't have as much traditional diversity as we now term it. Um, he doesn't have as many minorities or as many women. How, how, do, how do Eisenhower and Trump compare on diversity? Well, they're similar. There was some diversity, which had a more limited meaning in the 1950s, in the Eisenhower cabinet. He had a woman in his cabinet, something President Truman, his predecessor, never did. Hmm. So, and you don't get a woman in the cabinet by accident. He wanted to have one, and he appointed a woman named Ovita Cult Hobby, who became Eisenhower's first Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare. And she was perceived as doing a very good job. He, Dwight Eisenhower wanted an African-American to serve in a professional capacity in the White House, which no African-American had ever done before. And so he selected a man named Fred Morrow. Uh, and so literally, he it's the 1950s, a very different era for race relations in America, and there's Fred Morrow working in the White House in a professional capacity, mostly on special projects related to the black community, but he was, he was a professional person. Uh, and uh, there were other, you mentioned that Ezra Taft Benson was from the LDS Church, and yeah. that's a kind of diversity. There was a Catholic in the Eisenhower cabinet when that was hmm. unusual for a Republican administration. So there was some effort, but the key jobs, the most influential jobs, were held by middle-aged white men. And one question about Donald Trump's top picks is, will the inner circle of uh, cabinet picks and so on, will they be the same? These kind of alpha males from business and the military with whom Donald Trump you know, has sort of close ties. And so there could be some diversity, but the core group may not be very diverse. Hmm. 
Yeah. We'll find out. What do you think? We just have a couple minutes. What What do you think we can expect as far as uh, next week? Six of them, six of these cabinet members go before uh, for their congressional hearings. Do you Do you sense they're going to get through? And what do you sense going forward with the cabinet? Well, the one major change since the fifties on this front is there's much more of an ethics regime and then looking at people's financial backgrounds and so on. So it was easier in the fifties to pick wealthy businessmen to serve in the cabinet because there wasn't nearly as much government oversight of their financial dealings and so on. But the parallel here is that the Republicans controlled both the House and the Senate. Uh, In 1953, when the Eisenhower cabinet was submitted to the Senate for approval, the Republicans controlled Congress, both houses uh, now. And so there's this desire when your party controls Congress and... You, you've made these picks. There's a desire to give the president the people that he wants, or she someday, and let's see how that works out. Mm. So, the I do think the modern media world, television and so on, means that those hearings, many of them televised, make it important that the cabinet nominees be tactful and so on. So, uh, you, you know, problems might develop uh, either on the financial disclosure side, or if you have a very ineffective performance before the relevant committee in the Senate. But I suspect that in the end, most of them, if not all of them, will be confirmed smoothly. And then the real question will be, how well do they do? Hmm. And I guess this is, you know, he's got a, Donald's going to have to be willing to maybe lose a few that aren't performing, that aren't getting the results. Well, that's right. And one of the interesting things about him, that apprentice show, he is famous for firing <laughs> people who don't work out. Yeah. Right? And so it, it'll be interesting to see if he takes that quality and applies it in this new environment. Uh, and there are lots of other people he could hire. So, so will he be patient with people, or will he very quickly get rid of people if they don't do what he wants? Right. Right. And I I think he'll be a delegator, too. I I've always joked on the show that I'm not even sure he really wants to be president, except for a few reasons. And in the end, it's not the minutia he probably wants to get into, where some presidents love the minutia. We appreciate you again, Dr. David Stebbin um, from the uh, an American legal history professor in the Moritz College of Law and the modern U.S. political history professor at the U at the Ohio State University History Department. It's great to have people that. Uh, that do this for a living, right? That think it through, that know the research, that know the history. It's good to know smart people. We will take a break, come back, and help you uh, continue to see more of the good in the world. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You still, you get elected, right? And we, we've, not even we, but half of this country are thinking, yeah, Donald to go in there and stir the hive and, yeah, it'll be good. And the other half are like, oh, everything he does is evil and from darkness. Um, it, it never turns out to be black and white. It's, I mean, in the end, some of these people that he's putting in might be able to thin some of the fat and and cut off some of the fat of government, which wouldn't that be nice to just have some cuts? Well, that's job loss. Well, then let's improve. 
Let's make the systems better, as we talked about uh, yesterday. Um, Interesting. uh, Every single president brings something. And I just pray that Donald Trump will learn from history and from Mike Pence and others about the ability to communicate it a little more effectively so we don't polarize every conversation. Everything that comes out of the presidency doesn't need to be polarized, especially if we want to progress as a country, right? And just like President Obama's learning in his last few days, he should have spent more time up on the Hill. We all can learn. We all can learn. We will take a break, folks. That's hour number one of the show. Stick with us. And our goal to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Every day, we try to just give you the latest and greatest, and some of the news we even give you, it's important to know. We call it empty news. Matt Townsend News. Yeah. Happy Whipped Cream Day. Off, turn it off. I'm full. Oh, I ran out. Oh, that is the worst feeling. See, now we had a story before Christmas. Yeah. The Ready Whip Company. Yeah. Having some problems because the uh, propellant for their spray cans, there was a problem with the manufacturing of that, so they didn't have any for the holidays. So they'll, they'll get back to being able to produce that in, uh, what, the end of, the, end of January. It won't matter. I know about that because I purchased like a whole caseload right. of them. You made millions on... Ready whip cream mm-hmm. spray from a can. But now I'm out. It's sad because that means nobody will, I mean, people have dry pie. Well, no, you can buy like the tub. Pardon? There's like a little tub of whipped cream you can get. Yeah. Some, it's not, you know, the spray can, but. What if you, what if your can, is that not the worst feeling when your can empties and you still have three more pieces of pie? That yeah, that's you frustrating. Yeah. Then you have to start portioning, rationing. That's almost as bad as when you open up the milk and uh, it's no good anymore. Yeah. Mm. Meanwhile, there's people in other countries that aren't eating. Right. And we're talking about whipped cream like it matters. What well, kind of does. Is Once it... you've solved all the other problems in life, <laughs> whipped cream is an issue. I don't know. We've got so much to talk about. A really expensive pizza. Mm. We'll get into that. Also, um, how to help pregnant workers. So if you have a coworker who's pregnant, should you help? Should you, like, maybe compensate for what they're going through? And, like, hey, just take a break. Let me do this. And what does that do to self-esteem? And what does that do to this worker's sense of self? It's pretty amazing research about what pregnant women go through. I thought you were talking about helping them through the pregnancy, like taking them to Lamaze class. Maybe you could. Do some breathing you're exercises. Nice, you're a nice cubicle mate. Hey, do you need me to drive you to Lamaze? No, it's, Larry. It's I'm even fine. something if they drop a pencil and you get it for them. Something like that. Yeah. 
and they think, well, I'm useless. I can't even pick up a pencil. I can't even bend over you and know? pick up a pencil. But it, it, it does impact their self-esteem and not in the way you would think. If everyone became super supportive of the pregnant woman in the office, you would think that she would like that. No. But it doesn't necessarily, necessarily correlate. I was really aware of this with my wife's recent pregnancy. Refused to help her. I told her it was for his own, her own good. Well, wow. you're, you're cold that way. No, I, was, I asked, I would help you, but it would hurt your self-esteem. I read this article for the show, and she got really kind of angry. <laughs> See, so. I would pick up the pencil as long as the woman is not a pencil biter. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. Because if it's got teeth marks and you slobber all yeah. over it. That's yeah, gross. Mm. What if that. she's pregnant, though? So you're just going to watch her try to... I mean, shouldn't you just pick up the pencil because you're nice? Just I'll, pick it up by the lead. I'll just hand her a brand new pencil. Let me get you a new pencil, Stacy. Or just let she dropped it. Pick it up. Maybe she's low on iron. Maybe that's why she's chewing it. Got a craving for, yeah, lead. <laughs> we'll be talking with a researcher on how to better help pregnant workers and employees. It is a big deal because the majority of, uh, I think it's like 60% of women are working and 80% um or 20%, I guess, don't come back after they've had a baby for a few years. Yeah. And some of that, I believe, might be attributed to what they go through while pregnant. It's scary. So we can all be more empathic, for mm. heaven's sakes. And, you know, maybe you'll learn something about your spouse. Powerful. We'll get to all of that fun. Plus, don't, don't move an ambulance if it's parked behind your car. Just a little lesson. Right. We'll get to that as well. But first, the headlines from Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Thanks, Matt. In a meeting Wednesday with Democrats on Capitol Hill, President Obama offered some advice on how to make Republicans, uh, Republicans the re- battle to replace Obamacare that much harder. The meeting came just three weeks ahead of Obama's departure from the White House, at which point President-elect uh, Donald Trump has already vowed to get straight to work on dismantling the Affordable Care Act. For starters, Obama recommended that Democrats start referring to the new GOP-crafted health care plan as Trump Care to politicize it, just as the Republicans did to Obama's signature health care plan. More importantly, Obama told Democrats don't rescue Republicans by stepping in to help pass replacement measures. At the same time, Vice President-elect Mike Pence meeting with Republicans on Capitol Hill, we make, or he says, make no mistake about it, we are going to keep our promise to the American people. We are going to repeal Obamacare and replace it with the solutions that lower the cost of health insurance without growing the size of government. Hmm. It's like, good luck. This is crazy. This will be interesting to see what they what they come up with. President Obama has penned a lengthy essay that urges his successor to continue the current administration's criminal justice reforms. Those privileged to serve as president in a, and in senior roles in the executive branch have an obligation to use that influence to enhance the fairness and effectiveness of the justice system at all phases, Obama wrote in a Harvard Law Review piece published on Thursday. The 56-page article marks the first time a sitting U.S. president has published such an extensive piece of legal scholarship, the editor of the journal said. I continue to believe that a historic uh, moment exists to embrace the bipartisan momentum on this issue, he wrote. That kind of reform is good politics as well as good policy. This is uh, how, uh, what, he's uh, given, uh, what, reduced sentences to more people actually in jail than any other president but these are people who were mandatory minimums and it's kind of unfair the lengths of these prison terms and it's universally believed this is the case that's why he's doing it and so shouldn't we be passing laws i guess we do have laws now that that's not happening sort of but But these are for the laws from the 80s war on war on drugs yeah 
just say no. Really that kind strong of thing. sentences. Yeah. So we'll see where that goes. President uh, Tr- uh, elect Trump is reportedly working with his advisors on a plan to restructure the country's top spy agency due, due to a belief that the office of the director of national intelligence has become politicized. This comes after Trump was publicly mocked intelligence agencies and their conclusion that Russian hacked uh, backed hackers were involved in distributing uh, dis- disrupting the presidential election. The plan will reportedly also include the restructuring of the CIA, which includes cutting back on staffing at the Virginia headquarters and spreading more people in posts around the world. Mm. Obama will have a brief. Uh, they're in they're in Congress session right now. Senator John McCain is yelling at somebody <laughs> uh, uh, over this the Russian hacking. Uh, Obama will have a briefing tomorrow, and I believe, uh, or later today, yeah. and then Trump will have a meeting right. tomorrow. And then, then it'll all be solved because no. then Trump will have the full briefing, and we'll know. Well, the problem is they deal in like eighty percent. Don't you want to hear though? I would love to hear what Trump's advisors, yeah, are really saying, because it seems crazy to take on the CIA. You don't taunt spies no mama taught me that and you kind of want them on your side for other things down the road don't poke the tiger yeah and finally while the rest of us were sitting at our desks you know like here not really just doing much and hanging out probably probably during our show right uh 105 year old frenchman robert merchant set a new world record in cycling wow merchant biked 14 miles in an hour merchant probably merchant but you know i'm you know whatever Uh, he, he biked 14 miles in an hour, the most miles a man over the age of 105 has ever biked in just 60 minutes. Well, it seems like the only miles. Mm-hmm. The overall world record for the men's hour is about 34 miles. The 105 and over category was created just for this guy because, you know, he's the only one. <laughs> the former firefighter who picked up biking again at the age of 68 credits his fitness to eating his fruits and vegetables daily, not smoking, exercising every day, and going to bed by... 9 p.m. That's great advice. Ooh, I would love to go to bed by 9 p.m. I'd kill to go to bed by 9. I'm falling asleep by 9. I've turned into that guy. That guy that's watching that can't even make it to the news. So the guy that can go to sleep at 9 and can also bike 14 no, miles? not that guy. Oh, yet. okay. No. Not that guy. The pictures of this guy, he's in great shape. That's awesome. Yeah. Congratulations, uh, uh, Mr. Marchand. Monsieur. Monsieur Marchand. I was going to say senior. Then I'm mixing languages. Again, um, boy, did you hear about uh, Governor Cuomo from New York? He is he has made a huge announcement about a proposal for oh, yeah. free tuition. No. If you're if you live in New York State, you can receive the Excelsior scholarship where if your parents Excelsior. Excelsior where if your parents make less than $125,000 a year, you get free tuition hmm. to either a four-year or two-year school. Bernie Sanders, I believe, was at the announcement. Yeah. You know, that's his deal. It's amazing. So that's huge. Yeah. I mean, if this begins, you know, maybe this is the beginning. Maybe all these states will start picking this up. No. You don't think so? No. There'll, there'll be some holdouts. Yeah. I have a feeling they'll be red. Yeah, uh huh. Yeah. Because the blue states, they want to get everyone educated. I don't know. Um, And then the conspiracy theories surrounding that. Here we go. Who's going to pay for it? Which is a really interesting More of the liberal mind washing that. that That's true. Yeah. You don't want. uh, None of the red states want their kids going to be brainwashed. No. It's 
Good point. Really good point. Hey, um, <laughs> so if I told you that we could order a pizza, I'll email to Matt Townsend. What, what do you think's a good? What's a good price for a for a pie? A pizza pie? A pizza pie? Not just a piece, but the whole pizza. Are we talking? Yeah, let's say the full thing. I mean, you want you. It's just it's but, everything you want. But are, are you talking like national chain or some of these kind of local ones? Nah, that just try think to of do the best one that more? you can make. It doesn't matter. It's just the best. It's what, pizza. What Would about you pay the, fifty dollars? The thin crust pizza places where they just uh, try to yeah, I don't like those. Rip the fire, those. No. yeah, those are kind of weird. The wood fire um, pizza. I don't know. Maybe twenty bucks. Twenty? Is that yeah. as high as you'd go? Maybe I don't know. It's a pizza. It depends on on again the quality. Definitely twenty. You'd pay twenty for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can get Little Caesars for five bucks. You, you mm. get what you pay for. Yeah, um, but this uh, kitchen in, industry kitchen in New York, it's offering a pizza for two grand. Little steep. A little steep. Yeah. It's firewood pizza. Mm. Uh, wood fired is spr- is sprinkled luxuriously with twenty four karat gold leaves. Nice. Yikes! That sounds gross. Uh, They're you, really thin. It's about two hundred and fifty bucks a slice. Yeah. 50 bucks a bite, right? It's about 50 bucks a bite. Yeah. But you it only comes take with cheese, foie gras. foie gras. It only takes you five bites to get through a slice of pizza? This pizza. Ooh. It's probably small. Well, you're, you're going to chew it for quite a bit because it, it's expensive. And filling, I've heard. It has caviar scoop from the Caspian Sea. That's where I'm Truffles. Call the line there. Gold leaves glitter from Ecuador. Mmm. Sounds. So not made in America. Not, it's not an American pizza, that's oh. for sure. So the second they do that uh, tariff of what thirty five dollars, uh, yeah, or thirty five percent tariff, or well, just, whatever. If 5%, you just did your tax on that, no, yeah. that's a lot of tax too. It's insane. Um, but they, you have to order it forty eight hours in advance. Ooh, I mean, somebody's got to go get the foie gras. Somebody's got to mm. go. Speaking of forty eight hours in advance, try to uh, get a pregnant woman to. Uh-oh. Want something? Know what she's going to want within forty-eight hours. Is this coming from a man with a wife that's pregnant right now? Yes. More hate mail. Yeah. That's all right because they don't have to know ahead of time. You love them enough, you'll do whatever it takes. Mm-hmm. You're here to serve. If they want you to serve, you don't want to serve if they don't want you to serve. Right. But you're here to serve. Anywho, um, we we have a new sponsor for our show. And I've been trying to figure out how it, what it's about, how it works, but it's expensive, and it's probably the wealthiest you know vendor we've ever had put together a, a sponsorship for our show. So let's just listen to it. A forbidden love, dancing with decadence. I look at the sun, and it says. Je touche le plus. Indulgence. Still, I am gold. I am gold. I swim in the Caspian Sea. The shells sparkling, smooth to the touch. Je suis amoureux de la pizza. Don't hate me because I'm pizza. Wow. So, so it's a pizza it's a pizza vendor. Was the name of the pizza vendor in there? I didn't I couldn't. I think tell. they said don't hate me because I'm pizza at the end. Yeah. I don't know if that's the name of it. It reminded me of like a perfume commercial. Hmm. Well, it does sound like it's pretty pricey. So Je suis pizza. Hmm. Huh. What does that mean? I have no idea. <laughs> 
I think it's I am pizza. Um, it sounds really pricey, but I don't. You know what? Honestly, if they're going to sponsor the show, I'm for them. Doesn't that spot just make you fall in love with pizza all over again? Uh, I actually thought I was buying a car, like a Lexus. Huh. I, thought, I thought they were talking about a Lexus until the very end. Like I thought the Lexus, I envisioned it parked on the side of the Caspian Sea. Well, I think, I think what they're trying to say with this spot is that pizza means something different to everyone. Apparently, yeah. And so do so does Alexis, you know. Hopefully, the pizza doesn't taste like perfume. Yeah. Or the Lexus, because I'm still not sold. But I'm glad I'm not. Hey, I'm not looking a gift sponsor in the mouth. I'm not familiar with that expression. Look it up, Google it. Put that on a meme. Hey, we will take a break. When we come back, we're talking about how to better help pregnant coworkers. Are you supposed to help, or does it does it make them feel inferior? What do you do? Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, be a better coworker. According to a 2015 report by the Pew Research Center, working while pregnant is becoming increasingly common. In the late 1960s, about 40% of women worked full-time during their first pregnancies. By 2008, that figure rose to almost 60%. The report also found that 8 in 10 women, 82% of women worked until they were within one month of their due date. These new trends suggest that businesses and even employees need to be more informed about the best way to help make work uh, a comfortable place for employees who became pregnant. With us this morning is Dr. Beth Humbird, an assistant professor of management, to help us learn more about the right and wrong ways to deal with our coworkers uh, that are pregnant. And Dr. Humbird, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I this was a fantastic article. It was in Harvard Business Review, but it it created um, a conundrum for me. It, I didn't. It made it so I became much more empathic to what these women are going through, and I also, in the end, didn't quite know what to do to help. Sure. Um, so talk yeah. about your research. It's fascinating. Yeah. Sure. Sure. So I'll give you a little um, background. I mean, we've. Uh, you know, we've seen these increases in the percentage of women that are working while pregnant, even just the percentage of women working in professional careers over the last uh, number of decades. Um, and so a number of researchers, myself and some co-authors and other colleagues, um, you know, have tried to understand more about what is this experience of being pregnant while working um, and what can organizations do to support that. Mm. Um, and so while we know that, you know, there are formal uh, federal legislation to sort of protect w- pregnant women against discrimination, um, there's a lot that goes on in sort of the interpersonal context at work. Um, you know, like you said, how coworkers respond, how managers respond, um, that can have implications for you know, women's success in the workplace and ultimately their desires to continue working after they become moms. Um, And so the study here, 
you know, you're right. It was puzzling to us as well. Um, it was a follow-up to some other research we had done, um, a qualitative study that had been done by some of my co-authors where they noticed that women kept talking about, you know, the way in which um, others' responses to their pregnancy was making them question what they could do hmm. as working mothers. Um, and so the premise here was, you know, we, we are calling for organizations and managers to support their pregnant workers, to help them. Um, but what we found is that help can kind of be a double-edged sword. Right. Um, and, you know, one of the things uh, you said, it's fascinating. It gained a lot of uh, media attention, which was great. Uh, you know, one thing to caution, there was a, a journalist take on this that kind of ran with the idea of, okay, so if a pregnant woman drops a pen in the workplace, we shouldn't bend down and help her to pick right. it up. And that's not what, no, we, not the lesson. Know, what we found right or what we're saying. But I think it's that, you know, the sort of big takeaway is, sure, logistical support. You know, women need to leave for more doctor's appointments while they're pregnant. Um, requested support. They may say, hey, listen, I'm getting tired. I need to leave work early today. Great. That's welcome. Um but in an effort to be helpful, we found that often women were experiencing that managers or coworkers were, quote unquote, sort of protecting them. Mm. You know, oh, we won't offer you to go uh, travel yeah. for this big assignment because we don't think you'll want to. Or we're not going to offer you this new cross-functional team project because it's too much for you. Um, and that sort of help was actually undermining women's ability to feel like they could be successful both as pregnant workers and then ultimately as mothers. Is this about – I mean because I this is what it did for me. I've And I've, I'm a father of six and my wife worked uh, through a couple of those and it never dawned on me how much turmoil they're just going through day just to get to work, to get through work, to – to, and their battle with their own view of themselves, because a, a big per, a big percentage of these people don't come back to to work, sure. right? Sure, and you're right, and that's kind of where this body of research that this kind of fits with and is building on is really looking at that sort of identity management that women go through as, you know, they've seen themselves as professionals. Um, we tend to study professional managerial women that have been quite successful. Women are getting pregnant, you know, later in life than before, often because of professional goals, um, and they are. They're going through this sort of identity transition to, to try to figure out, well, what does it mean now for me to be a professional working mother? Um, and I think this research and others that have done similar work is showing that that process starts even during the pregnancy, mm. you know, that it's not just, okay, now I've had the child and I'm coming back to work and I'm going to figure this out, that these signals that women are receiving you know, even during their pregnancy at work are having implications for, like you said, if they return to work or not. Um, and some other research that I'm working on right now with colleagues is kind of trying to delve more deeply into that. We find that, um, interestingly, women's sort of confidence in their ability to be a good mother is having implications for their choice to stay at work or not. Mm. So part of it is the support at work and if they feel like they can contribute, but that can be born out of their ability. Well, if I do continue work, can I be a good, quote unquote, good mother? Yeah. Can I do, and can I do both? Right. Right. And you hear this narrative more broadly for working women, can they have it all? And you've probably seen yeah. the media sort of attention to that. And I think it's embedded in that narrative that, you know, we've made a lot of progress in terms of our expectations around gender roles, but still those traditional expectations persist. You know, women are associated with home life. Men are associated with work life. Um, pregnancy is a very feminine role, and so brings out those expectations of, 
you know, what it means to be a woman right. in contrast to what it means to be a worker. Um, and so all of that is wrapped up not only in how organizations and coworkers treat their employees and pregnant employees, but also what you're saying in how these women think about themselves. I didn't think of that. work through that. Well, I didn't even think about the because pregnancy is a very feminine role. And we also have a – so I wonder if sometimes the men become more protective and the females become more feminine-ish. I don't know. But we end up compensating and then that compensation is what creates the weird – you know, ostracizing of a of a person. I mean, if I'm overly protective as a boss, hey, don't even we'll fly someone else out to go do that meeting because you know you're six months pregnant. I don't. Sure, yeah, sure. You shouldn't. But that might be me just being a protective fatherly figure. Um, but in the end, I'm I'm denigrating possibly her sense of self. So you're exactly. I mean, so that the the sort of theoretical perspective that underlines what you're saying is this theory uh, called benevolent sexism, where it's not that the intention is to engage in sexist or discriminatory discriminatory behaviors, but you're acting on and and both men and women do this. Right. right? We're socialized to see women as in need of protection and need of support, um, and so your your intentions are not to you know, denigrate by in any way. Um, but in essence, but the reality exactly is it does. That. Yeah. Right. And that's kind of what the underlying, you know, when we started to get a sense of this from some of our earlier research, that was the underlying theory that kind of led us to say, well, let's look at this sort of is help always helpful. Um, and you know, is the, you're right. What happens is because pregnancy is a feminine role it just heightens this incongruence between being female and being a worker. Mm. Um, you know, pregnant workers can be perceived subconsciously, but as less competent, you know, in need of accommodation, maybe less committed. And so while these may not be sort of objective discriminatory behaviors, these perceptions, like you're saying, um, have implications for how people interact with the pregnant workers. And then in turn, they perceive that as some sort of signal for maybe I can't do this. Yeah. What is this going to mean for when I try to come back to work and juggle both? Yeah. What? How are they going to treat me? It's interesting, too, because it also seems to ride on – I mean being pregnant is also a medical issue. So if somebody came to work with an IV bag and an IV pole pushing it around – we we'd be real we would think carefully about how to approach that subject but we don't necessarily do the same thing when someone comes and announces they're pregnant well you know, it's so almost, the, yeah it's, it's, i see what you're saying i mean i think it's a degree of variation in terms of how objective the quote medical need is yeah. i mean technically uh you know like i said pregnant workers are a protected category under federal right. legislation that also protects you know, workers with disabilities, right. um, you know, maternity leave and family medical leave act is based on pregnancy and, and the childbirth process as being a form of disability. Um, but I think more broadly, what you're saying is, and this is where it becomes sort of a tough place, right? Is that, and this is kind of the outcome that we, we leave with in that article is we can't just assume a one size fits all approach right. to pregnant workers, to disabled workers, um, that we need to create a culture and an environment where both the women or the disabled employee more broadly feel comfortable sharing their concerns and what sort of support and help they need. At the same time, I had a, uh, a family friend who's a 
retired uh, employment attorney commented on this article, you know, having a nice intellectual discussion and said, you know, you end the article by saying that managers need to be more open in sort of asking for the kind of help pregnant employees need. And he said, but you got to be careful with that, too, right? Mm. Because there's some sort of laws and managers are trained to not ask about personal parts of people's lives. Um, So I think that you know, there is no one correct answer, but what we always go back to, whether it's from this research or other re- similar research we've done, is really, you know, formal policies, maternity leave, flexible work arrangements, great. That's a huge shift we've seen. Organizations need to do that. But we also need to attend to that informal, interpersonal culture, supportive environment, um, you know, that allows people to feel like they can share what is helpful and what isn't. Yeah. Hey, listen, I do. I did. I do want to go on that trip. I'm six months pregnant, but I think it would be great for my career. Right. Um, you know, at the same time, I'm tired. I'd like to leave early. You know, how yeah. can we foster that environment where it's okay to have those conversations from both the employee's perspective and the manager's perspective? Love it. That really is huge. Um, let, let's take a break. Come back and continue the discussion with Dr. Beth Humbert and her wonderful work, educating us all really and learning more about how better to help. Uh, workers, I think in general with just, and female workers, but stigma that's associated and dealing with more delicate issues. I think if we could learn to do this better, really, we can do anything. These are, these are sensitive issues yet not yet, depending on your relationship. And so much goes into this. So we'll continue the discussion about communication, relationships, and helping those that we work with. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, we're talking babies, pregnancies, and uh, the impact that being pregnant has on a on a woman at work, on her, her identity or her belief that she can do things. And the things we all do as coworkers, I mean, I could see people making jokes about the pen dropped on the floor. Um, hey, pick up that pen. I could also see, you know, as we were talking about earlier, people trying to to be a benevolent uh, sexist, uh, out of goodwill, out of good intention, trying to protect the the pregnant woman as well. And the research from Dr. Beth Humbert that she's been doing, uh, she's an assistant professor of management in the Manning School of Business at the University of Massachusetts, Lowell. And she is uh, enlightening us about the fact that even though, you know, they they may accept your help, and you may be willingly offering help. Sometimes giving help doesn't always equal good self-esteem for our coworkers that are pregnant. It also doesn't mean we shouldn't still be good people is what I'm getting. Is that, is that accurate, Dr. Beth? Yeah, sure. No, you're, you're doing a good job digesting it all. Uh, because it's complicated and we, it, it's like we don't want to step on their toes, but we also don't want to leave them just – you know, and and ignore it. Sure, sure. And one thing I was thinking, uh, following up on what we were talking about before is, you know, this supportive culture and environment where, you know, both managers and coworkers and pregnant employees themselves can feel comfortable 
talking about the support they need or what they don't need or how they want them to, uh, you know, approach their their pregnancy and constraints um, is sort of the, the consistency across the organization, too. So mm. in a lot of the research that we do just about managing work and family for many and women today, right, this is becoming even more of a issue for fathers, um, parents in general, as we have more dual career couples and more expectations that men will be involved at home and women will be involved in the workplace, um, that, you know, a lot of the research finds how much a supportive manager can actually matter to that. Um, And so how can we have that not be such a variation across the organization, right? Well, I have a great supportive manager, and so we've worked out these Hmm. work-life flexibility issues well, but the next you know, set of cubicles over, it's very different because the manager's different. So another sort of inroad for organizations is to think about training managers, you know, to be comfortable. Like you said, it's a tough place to, you know, to, you want to be open and communicative. You don't want to say the wrong thing. Right. And uh, everyone's so, different. Some, and everyone's different. Some will so come in and just scream of, they're pregnant, right? And others right. don't ever want it mentioned. Right, right, exactly. And, you know, and there is research on that, right, that the difference you mentioned earlier about, um, you know, medical disabilities with pregnancy is it's, it's a process and some, and it, at which some point it can be concealed and some point it can't. Yeah. And then it will have an end. Um, and right. so, uh, you know, different people manage that differently. Um, and so how can we, you know, as much as think about the women's experience of managing that, also arm managers you know, whether through human resource training, um, mentorship, role models of how to be comfortable. You know, different people have different levels of comfort in bringing the personal mm. into the professional world. And those are skills. Uh, those are learnable. That's teachable. Communication skills, uh, interpersonal. And, and it doesn't even have to be based in pregnancy. Um, your Your article, for example, created a really important, I think, shift for me that that this is an issue that I didn't even think – I mean I didn't think about it. I don't have a lot of – I work at a university and in my own private consulting business. And in my own consulting business, I don't have a lot of pregnant people. And in the university, I don't have a lot of pregnant people. But it's it's just about sensitivity really is what it's being about and becoming empathic and understanding and then finding a way to talk about it. I think so. And I think I think the last point you made is the key piece, right? For a while, we've been talking about, uh, I'd say for about 20, 30 years, there's been this shift towards, you know, sensitivity training or diversity yeah. training in the workplace. And I, I would say the addition to that in the last decade or five years is to be authentic about that, right? right. That it, this isn't just about pregnant workers. This isn't about tiptoeing around. This is about a broader rec- recognition of, you know, the workers as whole person, mm-hmm. men and women, young and old, that have lives both in and outside of work. Um, and we do a lot of work looking, there was a sort of a sociological perspective that talked about perceptions of the ideal worker, you know, and this this perception, while we would like it to shift, still seems to hold across most professional environments that workers are unencumbered by obligations outside of work. And that's the mm. expectation that right. drives us to expect people to work long hours and be fully committed. And that's just not the reality. Um, you know, men and women, young and old, are do have responsibilities in and outside the work and desires in and outside of the work. Um, and so how can we, like you said, create this empathic, communicative, supportive environment, but in a way that's authentic? Mm. You know, right. our leaders, our, yeah. our CEOs might leave early to go to their child's sports game, share that, celebrate that, create that as consistent across the organization. And I think that trickles down to make some of these 
conversations um, you know, more helpful and more comfortable for people. And, and you do see that in the literature about engagement, how disengaged a lot, 70 percent or so of our corporate world are fairly disengaged from their job. They, they'd rather be doing something else. And it, I mean, it might be another reason, too, why we why a pregnant woman might disengage from wanting to work. It's I guess it, as we get to this, this is this people are diverse and complex and we can't just even assume that a corporate policy is going to make it work. We have to learn these skills. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and that's actually what a lot of so a lot of the research on, you know, the formal policies around maternity, flexible work arrangements in general, you are seeing an increase in those policies being offered. We're not necessarily seeing the corollary increase in them being used. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of research, particularly actually around men in the workplace, that yes, we have now paternity leave policies, we have flexible work arrangements that are offered for men and women, but men are still stigmatized for taking them. Oh. And so an organization <laughs> might end up on the best place to work list because they have a paternity leave policy, but in the informal culture, it's such that. Well, you know, men are offered four weeks, but everyone around here only takes a week. It, you know what? I Yesterday, a few days ago, I spoke to 400 construction workers, and they were doing a Q&A with their leader, and somebody asked about paternity leave in front of li- literally 400 male construction workers, and you would have thought someone pulled a gun. <laughs> it was like, what did he say? You yeah, men, yeah. you're not having the baby for crying out loud. But it, it, and I almost feel like it's probably a similar experience um, in some corporate America environments about pregnancy. Do you notice a difference um, between a, a female boss and a male boss in this aspect? Well, and so that's always an interesting question, right? Of are are so these benevolent sexes you know, attitudes I talked about, these perceptions we have, expectations of gender role, is it more likely that a a man is going to, you know, hold those expectations? For the most part, no, right? We are all socialized to sort of understand these norms, these gender role expectations and norms. Um, There's been a ton of research that actually tries to look at, well, is it the opposite? Are are female bosses worse, quote unquote? Um, And I think there's different factors that can account for that. Um, I think across the board, this is, we're, we're all doing this. Right. I mean, right. even when we've I've have two children myself and I still have had colleagues that are pregnant and I've had to figure out how to cover their workload. And, you know, when I was worked in industry, um, so you know, these are not things that any of us are immune to. And I think that's why your point around how do we build our skills and communicating and just being more open and supportive around this is useful for everybody. That's great. And also I look at it um, and and help me it because there's two sides to the equation. One side would be. Everything we're talking about, getting the management, getting people more trained, getting the policies, having discussions with our HR departments, explaining this better to our people. There's also the side of the pregnant employee. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like she, too, would have a lot of power to to help uh, facilitate some of this as well. What what advice do you give the pregnant worker to to maybe improve her own situation? Sure. And I think that, you know, a lot of some of this research that my colleagues have done on um, pregnant women's concealing behaviors. So how long do they choose to Mm. conceal the pregnancy? When do they reveal it? And there's various factors that have implications on that, you know, both personal in terms of her own health and physical appearance, but also the environment. And, And we find that in more supportive environments and with more supportive managers, that concealing behavior is reduced. Okay. Um, And I think, you know, once, 
a woman can feel comfortable discussing her concerns, her pregnancy, her plans, that sort of starts that more positive communicative environment hmm. going forward. Um, I also think there's this one thing we haven't touched on, and there's a strong you know, role to be played here for role models hmm. um, and, and other women and other parents even that have uh, experienced this in sort of being open about their experience, you know, much like the paternity leave stigma, there is the, you know, maternity leave is a more accepted as a formal policy, but there's variation in are women taking a quote unquote full maternity leave? Are they still logging on and responding to emails? Um, you know, and how does that behavior of coworkers in the past have implications for how upcoming pregnant women yeah. are going to, you know, are going to um, engage on their leave. In fact, I had a colleague in the university environment that studied some of this and, and was out on leave about a semester ago, and she kept saying, it's so hard, I like to be engaged, I want to check my email, and we all said, put up an out-of-office message, not just for yourself, but to signal that when somebody goes on leave, they're on leave, mm. you know, and yeah, that's and model for creating that. that culture and expectation for others going forward. Yeah, it's almost like we've been trying to dodge it, like, and for a variety of reasons. And historically, it wasn't appropriate to, you know, have a leave. Um, but as it, beca- as it becomes more normalized, if we could normalize it even more by having role models that do it, that are confident. But like you were talking about in your article, it also becomes self-fulfilling. If you already have questions about your work-life balance, that might impact more how you're sensitive to some of this. And then that reinforces the fact that you hide stuff. And it's almost self-fulfilling. Sure, sure. And And the the other could be just as powerful. Right. And I I think the last thing we'd want out of this research or these types of conversations is for people to feel more – constrained and right. worried about saying or doing the wrong thing, right? right? That's why the picking up the pen example right. had us chuckling. And if you read the comments on that article, it was, oh, geez. You know, you don't want people <laughs> to on. feel more right. constrained and tiptoeing. I think that, you know, at the end of the day, it's what you were saying at the beginning is just sort of checking our assumptions, being open and authentic about the questions we have. You know, maybe you have a new employee who newly reveals that they're pregnant and this is your first time as a manager and so you openly say that i want to be supportive of you i want you to also still feel like you can advance and be challenged that's good i'm going to let you tell me what works for you let's Mm. check in in a month i love that doesn't feel comfortable with that we try something different but i think at the base level the more you know communicative open authentic the more comfortable both the worker and the manager will feel it's great and everybody learns and uh, you know we we raise the we raise all ships um well done dr beth humbard thank you so much for your great work Uh, again beth is an assistant professor of management in the manning school of business at the university of massachusetts lowell and she's teaching us how to just be a good co-worker really that's what this is about and it's not about anything it's not about anything other than just be teachable learn adapt grow open your mind a bit and still care we will take a break come back when we come back we're going to do a little uh, coach's corner with new year's resolutions do over if you've had a new year's resolution that you can already blow up don't give up on it yet i've got some ideas for you how to keep that fire alive stick with us Welcome back, friends. Have you uh, set a New Year's resolution? And if you have, have you already blown it? 
According to the research, 60% of New Year's resolutions are violated within the first month. And then very quickly, I think about another 30% are also violated uh, after that. So what are we supposed to do when we set a New Year's resolution and we blow it? You know, you said you're not going to eat sugar, never going to eat sugar again, not doing it, you know. And by the 4th of January, you just you're downing a Twinkie. Gotcha. So do you need to do it over? Here's my little coach's view. Um, I don't think God gave us an earth so that we could all put together a New Year's resolution every January. I think we're here to learn and grow over time. Change doesn't happen in a day, but it is constant, and learning is one of our goals. So the neat thing about a New Year's resolution is that you can make it. Um, Another powerful thing about it is you can learn when you blew it, change it, adapt it, and then start it again three weeks later if it's a really important goal for you. So let me give you some tools to do the do-over, things that you might want to do, things that you might want to undo to make sure that your New Year's resolutions work and that they stick. First and foremost, undo the one-and-done mentality of goal setting. So many people, I think, are trying to become perfect, and they believe that setting a goal and eating healthy and being in great shape, it's about becoming perfect at something. And I think perfect is a neat goal, but progress is a better reality. And if we would focus a little more of our our time and attention on progressing and making sure we're heading in the right direction, that we're learning, that we're adapting, that we're changing. If you've been eating sugar your entire life, the idea that at 2017 you're just going to stop it may not be realistic. And one of the funny things that research shows, humans are notoriously bad at um, managing expectations about what's going to happen in the future. We're highly – we're very optimistic people. We don't necessarily see things as they really are. But if you have blown it, great. That's You're not done. Just because you made one mistake, you're not done. Now becomes the real test of character. Are you going to adapt and change? Another tool I teach is refocus your goals on the do, not the don'ts. Okay, It's hard. So if you say, I will, I'm going to stop eating carbs. That's a don't. I won't eat carbs anymore. I'm not going to eat carbs. Not doing it. Not going to happen. The problem is every time you think of your goal, what's your goal? I'm not going to eat sugar. The minute you think about not eating sugar, you're thinking about sugar. So wouldn't it be better to set a goal? And this is, I believe, one reason why our New Year's resolutions do fail is because we set our goals on the don'ts instead of the do's. So instead of not eating sugar or not eating carbs, what are you going to eat? I will eat healthier meals six times a day. I'm going to eat healthier. uh, I'm going to, instead of I will not drink soda, have your goal be I will drink whatever, 64 ounces of water a day. It's just easier to make a goal happen that you want to do instead of what you don't want to do, right? Another one is focus on the principles, not the practices. The practice may be, you know, carbs. It might be a certain diet you're going to live, but the principle might be more healthy. So focus on being healthy eating instead of I'm going to do the 17-day diet or whatever diet, right? Be healthy instead of just making it about I'm going to do my ab workout every day. I get it. You were trying to be specific and that works, 
but you can also tie it on the principle because there might be a day you have back pain and you're not allowed you're not able to do your sit up program but you can still do something else to maintain your physical health another rule is find one thing to do and 100 ways to do it Find one thing that you should be doing, and if my goal is to get healthier, then I need to find 100 ways in my life that I could do that. So go brainstorm. Make a list of everything that works for you. What did you learn today works for you to stay healthy? Well, if I drink more water, I notice that I didn't have muffin at breakfast today. I notice that if I have the fruit next to me and I always am carrying it with me, then I'm less likely to eat cookies. So make the list and find 100 things you can do to get physically fit, to be uh, more mentally healthy, to get more sleep. What are 100 ways you can make sure you get better sleep? No caffeine after 3, you know, turn off my cell phone after 8 o'clock, whatever the rules are. And then one other simple rule for you is just learn to do what's hard. I was trying to do push-ups in front of my kids the other day and they looked at me like I was dying. Like, Dad, I wish you didn't have to die now. We've got to learn to do the hard thing. So turn this goal, this New Year's resolution that's so hard for you, into a great way to model development and growth for your kids. Makes sense. It's not one and done. You're just getting started. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Thursday morning, everyone. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're not uh, dreaming. This is still The Matt Townsend Show, but Dr. Mattless. I guess if If I'm the guy of your dreams, then maybe you're dreaming. But that would be weird and a little sad. Anyway, welcome back to the program. We're having a good time today. We've talked about expensive pizza. We're going to be talking about cold French fries. I'm hoping Terry will have another food-related story because I'm always hungry. I'll have to look. Okay. Cold French fries. That's the worst, especially if they're McDonald's French fries. No, you got to have fries like... Under the seat of your car. That's, that's for like an, a that's rainy an, day? That's an accessory. No, that's that's for when you get stuck in the snow, like days done today. And okay. Those, those are more stale than cold. So but you, but you, they're still cold. I mean, if it's, it's 19 degrees outside, It's, it's when cold. we stop and get a, like a, a burger and fries for my kid, and he doesn't finish them. He goes, oh, we want oh, to put them okay. in the fridge. And then yeah, I'm like, no, you don't no. want to do that. And then the oh. next day, he's like, these are gross. I'm like, why'd yeah. you put them in the fridge? So usually when I get food storage, I'll get the kind that will last for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, not the kind of food storage that is under your seat for 10 years. Well, there is that. There, there's also you can also put licorice under the seat, and it will it'll last a long time. Hmm. All right. I just, spilled popcorn in my car the other day, and I'm figuring I'm just going to leave it there. There you with go. With all the snowstorms we're expected to have. So these are the types of survival tips that you're not going to get anywhere else. I hope you don't get them anywhere else. Anyway, also in terms of food, it's whipped cream day. Whipped cream. <laughs> For whatever Thank you. reason. Thank you, Sean. Yeah. So uh, go out and get some whipped cream. Put it on some 
pie? Hmm? Wrong whip. Sorry. Yeah. Oh. I think that's actually how they whip it. Whip that's it why good. it's called whipped cream. Anyway, uh, before we get to the cold fries story, though, which is a strange and sad one, and it doesn't involve cold fries under Sean O'Neill's car seat. Not car seat. That makes you sound like a baby. Uh, driver's seat. Driver's there we car. Go. Seat, of the, seat of the car, yes. Let's head on over to Terry South and see what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said on Wednesday that he will not tolerate Democratic efforts to block presidential, President-elect Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee. McConnell's remarks come just days after Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer suggested that Democrats would block a Trump nominee from the vacant spot on the high court in retaliation for the GOP's refusal to hold hearings on President Obama's choice, Merrick Garland. So we're all being adults here and just letting government happen. You did <laughs> I'm, it, so I'm, I'm taking to... my Supreme Court justice and I'm going to play somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. On Wednesday, President-elect Donald Trump announced that he will nominate Walter J. And then it's J as in, I guess they call him J as his first name. Then no one calls him Walter. Walter His White? name is Walter J. Clayton, oh, but then they have Clayton. the name J, J-A-Y in quotes meaning i guess that's what they call him they call him jay clayton hmm. his name's walter hmm. all my friends call him jay which is needless information <laughs> they're going to nominate him for chairman of the securities and exchange commission the sec uh, clayton would ensure our financial institutions can thrive and create jobs while playing by the rules at the same time this is from the trump uh, people trump suggests that clayton would shift the sec away from robust financial regulation and enforcement clayton is a partner at a wall street firm of sullivan and cromwell LLC, of course, uh, the go-to legal advisors for Goldman Sachs for more than a century. You know, the evil people that Trump berated certain other candidates for being associated with, but now he seems to have a lot of those types of people hanging around. Hmm. Um, they negotiated major deals for Goldman, Chinese internet powerhouse Alibaba, and large banks on both the buying and selling side of the financial meltdown in 2008. Mm-hmm. So all kinds of wonderful things to ask him about at his hearing that will likely come up within the month. New federal guidelines issued Thursday recommend exposing babies to peanuts early on to prevent the development of a da- of dangerous allergy to the food. In a turnaround, the National Institutes of Health says the landmark research has found that allowing babies to eat peanut-containing items before their first birthday dramatically lowers their chances of becoming allergic to the nut later on. The guidelines specific, uh, specify that various risk factors determine whether exposures at different ages may be more effective at preventing the allergies. Officials are also quick to point out that these guidelines require a checkup before anything is tried at home. We're on the cusp of hopefully being able to prevent a large number of cases of peanut allergies, says a member of the NIH panel that determined the new guidelines. Can I just say how in favor of that I am? You don't realize how big of an issue this is until you try to provide snacks oh. for your child mm-hmm. at preschool. Yeah. And so, one person can't have peanuts because something that you brought was manufactured in right. a peanut plant. You can't bring it. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you, you give peanuts to the kids to prevent the allergies. That's what they're saying. Early exposure doesn't lead to allergies later on. Okay. See, this yeah. is like in The Princess Bride when Wesley – takes his own poison he takes uh he takes iocane and he uh, mm-hmm. develops a, an antidote for it no 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 he a tolerance over, over, yes yes, yes. Mm-hmm. which is just science right there yeah it's on a movie bravo and finally the uh consumer electronics show is going on in las vegas right now which means there's a lot of ridiculous things that are connected to wi-fi and bluetooth being presented i always find it funny that it's the consumer electronics show yet a consumer cannot get in 
You can <laughs> later on. There's, if you're, there's some if public you're days. Press. Isn't there public days? Or Not you can that get I in know there? of. Okay. Uh, well, the uh, what's it? Nokia. The, if you remember the phone company. Now they're not a phone company. The name has been sold to somebody else, but they're calling themselves Nokia, which makes it really confusing. But they're not even really making phones. There's a few phones they're making, but really what they're making are items that connect to the web, right? They're called uh, smart home stuff. Withings, withings. That's the name of the company. Mm. It's kind of dumb. Um, they teamed up with L'Oreal, the uh, makeup and are yes. they connect, company. Make, makeup brushes to the internet. Uh, hairbrushes. You're kidding me. It says that it's called the Hair Coach. The high-tech hairbrush has a microphone so it can hear your hairbrushing patterns. Uh, an accelerometer and a gyroscope, commodity sensors that are supposed to analyze your brush strokes and patterns. Load cells, otherwise known as transducers or sensors that measure the pressure you're applying to your hair. And conductivity sensors that are supposed to know whether you're brushing dry or wet hair, which is horrible. Shame on you. Don't do that. Mm. All of this data is shared wirelessly with a mobile app over Wi-Fi and Bluetooth connections. Why? They want to make sure you're not ruining your hair. I know you don't really relate to this much. Yes. <laughs> I'm getting there. Wow. But There's a reason I cut my hair very short. What about paying $200 for a connected hairbrush? No. No? Mm. Okay. That's the price. I'm sorry. I have four daughters. They all have hairbrushes. I'm not paying $200. I, I don't need, need $1,000 worth of brushes in my house. It says the app will let you know if you have unruly hair. If it's knots bad, and bad you know, hair, split bad hands. hair. Uh, they 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 said it's the brush knows when you've spent a lot of time and effort brushing your tangled hair. Of course, I would not have known that myself. As the author goes on here, the app will show you products that will fix your hair problems naturally from the companies involved in oh, making the product. Really, I didn't know that. Yeah. Hmm. you know, you may not remember Nokia, but you'll never forget the Nokia ringtone. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. He does that well. I know. I used to have that. Did you buy the 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 rights to that? Yeah. Oh, excuse me. No, that was my impression of it. So I'm I'm within my rights to do so. Well, I thought you knew it so well. You just yeah. It's forever ingrained in my mind. Anyway, so there was a, a food story in there with the peanuts, and I'm all for. I have another food story. So giving peanuts to babies. Um, just as long as they're cut up small. Yeah, talk enough. to your doctor first. Yes, do that. This is em- this emerging research. We, we talk to your doctor. My my daughter had a, the first time we gave her peanut butter. She had a, she did have a reaction, but uh, she hasn't. We, they said, "Well, wait a little while," and then we waited a, a few months. A delicious reaction. No, it wasn't. As, oh, no, she had a rash. Oh as my we've, goodness! As we've talked about before, the only reaction my son has is he doesn't like chunky peanut butter. He likes really? the smooth peanut butter. Mm. Oh, I gotta have chunky. I had a whole bottle or a whole uh, jar of chunky to myself last month. So. There you go. Yeah, it's good. Just as long as it doesn't come with the one inch of oils at the top. Yeah, you just kind of stir that. It's okay. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. So we teased a story about cold French fries, not the kind that you store under your driver's seat, though. A Florida man was arrested after deputies said he allegedly received cold fries from a fast food restaurant, demanded new ones, and punched the employee through the drive-thru when he was denied them. Tavares Jones, 25, was at a fast food restaurant when he ordered French fries and allegedly received a cold batch. Deputies said Jones demanded new fries, as I said, and some ketchup from the restaurant and threw the original batch back at the employee. How rude. Hmm. The employee told deputies that Jones became very angry and demanded that she fight him. 
He also reached through the window and punched her in the arm, which left a bruise, deputies added. As Jones tossed the fries at her, deputies said the employee retaliated by tossing ice and ketchup packets at him. So, in the end, he got his ketchup packets. Well, at least he got the ketchup. Yeah. See, this actually sounds a little bit like my wife. Does she randomly ask people to fight her? No. Oh, okay. She can't stand it when she gets... I mean, her fries have to be hot. Okay. I mean, lava. Okay. Just, you know, burn the roof of your mouth hot. Hmm. Well, yeah, because then that will burn your tongue, and Mm -hmm. that will make you so that you cannot taste food, and then you don't have an appetite as much. I guess. Wow. So this maybe he was using reverse psychology, like in The Wizard of Oz, where the scarecrow says, I'll show you how to get apples. And then they start taunting the trees until they throw apples at them. Hmm. So he got those ketchup This actually packets. reminds me of the YouTube video that I saw of the lady who wanted chicken nuggets at 5 a.m. or something. <laughs> and she punched out the drive through window and was yelling at the people. In the, and it was it's quite humorous, actually. Just remember, folks. The, the the teenagers that are serving you your French fries and chicken nuggets through the drive through are not typically the ones calling the shots. So uh, just go easy on them. Yeah, they go don't easy. determine the hours of breakfast and right. lunch. In other food-related news, yes. a McDonald's location has opened in a Vatican-owned building in Rome. Really? Hmm. It's uh, downstairs from some cardinals. They live in the upper... Upper building in Saint in Saint Peter Square, one hundred yards from the Vatican State. Okay, right. So you, I've been there. The official Vatican boundaries—they're mm-hmm. just outside, but those buildings are also owned by the Vatican. Right. Uh, the new branch dubbed the McVatican. <laughs> yeah, I know. Launched this week amid controversy over the fact that McDonald's is paying around thirty thousand a month to rent from the at, Vatican. At least it's not the McSistine. A, uh, a cardinal said that uh, the restaurant is a disgrace. It sells unhealthy food and criticized the decision to take money from McDonald's. And he says, I repeat, selling mega sandwiches this close to the Vatican is a disgrace. Okay. You know so what, though? You I, think, know, I think the Pope, the Pope is eating there. The Pope gets hungry, too. He's eating there, and uh, the reviews are in. He said, I'm loving it. Well, he, the word is he rolls by, asks to see if the McRib is in. Yes. They say, sorry, that'll be next month. And then he comes back for the McRib. Oh. Okay. Man, they never have what you want. Well, you know, another story that's food-related while we're on the topic of food, we talked about this last hour, but now, Sean, you're the newest one here uh, Mm -hmm. during the program, so we'll need to get your take on this, on cracking this commercial and what it could mean. So this is one of our new sponsors. It's a, a pizza ad. Let's hear what you think about this. A forbidden love. Dancing with decadence. I look at the sun and it says, Je touche le bleu. Indulgence. Stilton. I am gold. I swim in the Caspian Sea. The shells sparkling, smooth to the touch. Je suis amoureux de la pizza. Don't hate me because I'm pizza. Would you have known that was a pizza commercial until about the last five seconds? No, that sounds like a some sort of cologne ad. <laughs> hmm. Well, Beyonce. apparently there is a, a restaurant in New York that is offering a $2,000 pizza. 
Okay, gold what? leaf on the pizza. There, there's gold in it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's caviar that's scooped from the Caspian Sea. Ah, uh, well, uh, hopefully it's from the fish that's in the Caspian <laughs> Sea. White Stilton cheese is flown in from England. Okay. The foie gras and truffles are from France. Oh wow, that's yeah. fancy. What's the most you've ever paid for a pizza? I actually uh, – I very much enjoy a pizza place in Salt Lake City. Mm, the um, pie? No, 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 no. No, this is uh, – I, 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 I served an LDS mission and I served my mission in Italy. Oh, and so I see. Mm-hmm. There, is a, there, is a, there is an authentic uh, pizza place in uh, Salt Lake City called uh, Sete Bello. And they have – and it's about $14 mm. for the one that I like. <laughs> Okay. So, wow, I feel like I can't even But it ain't 2000. Yeah. I feel like I shouldn't even be allowed to talk to you since you've been in Italy and know what real pizza is like. Well, it's I look at it as two different things, Italian pizza and American pizza. They're, I enjoy and I I enjoy both. And I enjoy both way too much probably. Well, thank you for staying humble. We we here who have not been to Italy appreciate it. But, you know, just imagine what they'll say now about Italian McDonald's. Oh, yeah. You haven't had McDonald's until you've had Italian McDonald's in the Vatican City. There you go. Wow. Anyway, hopefully we've uh, – you're salivating right now with $2,000 pizza, whipped cream. I haven't had breakfast yet, so yeah. Prepubescent peanuts. Anyway – We're going to take a break. When we come back, speaking of uh, prepubescence, we're going to be speaking with someone who is going to be talking to us about the psychology behind why children are so terrible at hiding. And if you have kids like I do and you try to play hide and seek with them, you'll be able to identify with this. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're uh, still trying to get a hold of our guest that's going to be talking to us about the psychology behind why children are so terrible at hiding. And I feel like I could talk for five or ten minutes about that and maybe about why my children are so terrible at hiding. They always give away my hiding spot. My kids hide things from me all the time. Really? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah, I I forgot to do that homework assignment. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my kids will not only give up my hiding spot if if somebody else is counting, but they will uh, – when it's my turn to count and I come look for them, they just choose the same spot that I just used when I was hiding last. Hmm. Or they'll get tired of you not finding them after 10 seconds. Yes. And they'll say, yoo-hoo, or start that's laughing. Just a, that's just attention span. Yeah. Anyway, hopefully we'll we'll get to talk about that because it is an interesting topic. But, uh, Terry, you had some interesting stories that you wanted to share with us. Apparently Samsung will announce uh, later this month what caused the that Note 7, the phone, mm. to uh, catch fire. Yes, we've been waiting. Are they gonna, um, they're going to have a, a Note 7A? I would think that name is dead, and there's no way they can market it in any way. So, yeah. But, yeah, they have yet to actually – it would spontaneously combust. Now – 
The report said it would explode. The batteries weren't exploding. It was more of an implode sort of situation happening, but it get really hot and cause problems sure. that way. So they'll announce at some point what they didn't announce yet. And they even had a keynote yesterday in, at a Las Vegas oh, really? show, but they didn't mention it there either. But they, the did introduce, they didn't introduce their next model, the Samsung Fireproof. Okay. No, I don't believe they... Mentioned any new phones? Are they making There's... Are they making asbestos cases for? The... No, but they are moving on. Okay, moving on from that. Um, also, earlier this week on uh, Sunday, there is a new law in France: the right to disconnect. A law that means workers are not obligated to read or send work-related emails outside of office hours. Oh! Under the new law, companies of fifty or more people are now obliged to negotiate with workers guidelines that set when employees are not required to read or answer work-related emails. If the two sides can't come to an agreement, the company must publish a charter that specifically outlines what is expected of workers outside of work hours. So, hmm. are you Terry reading uh, emails and uh, that sort of thing outside of work? Yeah, but I don't see it as a burden. No. A lot of people uh, apparently in France see it as a burden, and that's why the law was passed. They're like, we don't want to do this. I'll do it if if I've already read everything on IMDb or Yahoo Movies. Just one more thing to do. <laughs> so studies have been used to back the law, including one from French research group uh, Elisa that showed over a third of French workers use smartphones to work outside of usual office hours, while 60% support such a law to make clear what their rights were. They felt like they had to do it to keep their job, and if they didn't, they were going to get fired, and some of the places of employment required you to do that. Yeah. I've heard at uh, Amazon, uh, if you work there, you're basically required to be on constantly. There's no off time. Mm. Wow. At any moment, That's you should be That's not too surprising. I guess, with, with, uh, uh, I guess with a company like that, and you're trying to you know, make deliveries as fast as possible. That extends into the executive offices and all that. So. You know what, though? If that helps me get a refund for a, a product I didn't get on time faster, Which it probably I'm doesn't. all for it. It probably doesn't. But. <laughs> now, now <sighs> I took some flack earlier in the week when I revealed that, uh, that I still get DVDs from Netflix. I th- Why do you take flack, flack for that? Flack was not know. given. No, it was. I, you, you I and, was surprised. You and, you and Townsend. We're just going to call him I Townsend. Was, I was surprised. You both were like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? I want well, to let you know I'm not alone. I respect you. Yeah, I feel it. <laughs> um, so 20 years ago, Netflix launched its online DVD rental service for movie Really? Buffs. 20 years 1998, ago? 1998. The company wow. has since shifted its focus to streaming TV and films as well as producing their own content. However, the company isn't yet done with their DVDs. It just launched a new app for uh, Apple phones uh, for iOS devices. Uh, DVD.com is the sister site where you do your you can, you can get your DVDs. Um, it lets people select and rent videos and discs delivered and returned by mail. And it isn't just your weird neighbor, apparently. There's 4.2 million people who still uh, subscribe to the service. They make 100 and – what was the number? $132 million quarterly off their DVD rentals. See, now the benefit of doing this, is, as you were saying, is you get some of the older movies that you're not going to find elsewhere, including streaming services. Well, no, new released movies. That's no right. No new released movies. Yeah, my wife and I, because – kids all of a sudden showed up you can't go see all the movies you want to see yeah mm-hmm. and uh those movies only are on dvd they don't have them streaming on netflix that's right mm. right so like uh what did we just watch we saw um 
as you can see, it's impactful. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm noticing that. Yeah, some sort of Marvel film. I'm thinking. Well, uh, yeah, all those end up coming through. Uh, we, I saw my my kid for the first time saw the Force Awakens, the Star Wars movie. Oh, okay. He saw really? that off of Netflix mm-hmm. DVD that we got. So. It's released. There's a time period, a waiting period, and then it shows up. And whatever new released movies come out, it's there, and we can we can watch it that way rather than uh, drag my kid to a movie that has these super loud speakers, and that tends to kind of freak him out. Sometimes. And he wasn't and scarred I, for life. No, he was great. Okay. I have he actually noticed that the speakers in theaters seem to be even louder. More, I, w- more I, went, I went to one that it was advertising that they have loudspeakers, and that wow. was that was supposed to give you a high definition sort of experience. And I just put, I actually, I usually go with some uh, some headphones that I just kind of listen to some music or something mm-hmm. as we're waiting. And I put the headphones back in with no music playing, just to kind of deaden the yeah. the sound. It was so loud. I think they started showing commercials for uh, ENTs before the movie too, right? Yeah. Hearing aid specialists mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Um, by the way, did you ever wonder why Michael Keaton left the Bat- Batman franchise? I did read that he had uh, done an interview where he mentioned that. He what did, did he actually. Uh, well, he uh, actually did an interview with um, uh, the Hollywood Reporter's Award Chatter podcast. Uh, and basically he said it sucked. <laughs> the script was never, never was good. Uh, I couldn't understand why director Joel Schumacher wanted to do what he wanted to do. I hung on for many meetings. I knew it was in trouble when Schumacher said, why does everything have to be so dark? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is the Batman franchise. Right, right. And you're wondering why it has to be so dark. But it was really dark the way they did it. Yeah, but that's what Batman is supposed to be. But we can't, we can't forget that Batman's roots, at least uh, video-wise – Came from, I mean, he started out as a colorful, campy character. Oh, that was the 60s version. Right. Yeah. Yes. And they wanted to do the that more was current totally one different. at the time. Yes. And I, I was actually subscribing to that comic book series, and there was a few covers that came in that my mom was like, what is this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> All kinds of weird I, stuff happening. I heard he didn't want to do it because uh, he turned it down so he could do Mr. Mom 2. Yeah. <clears throat> That's not true? You're telling me that didn't happen? No. I didn't see Mr. Mom. I'm still waiting for the Mr. Mr. Mom 2 movie to come out. Yeah, that's not I love Mr. Mom. 220, 221, whatever it takes. Terry Garr. Christopher Lloyd was in it, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In other news. Yes. Mark Zuckerberg. Facebook. I've heard of him. Yeah. He has a challenge. Every year he challenges himself to do something. Uh, Yeah. One year he uh, wanted to learn Mandarin. That was last year, I think. Or the year before. But he did it, and he actually went to China and delivered a keynote at some conference in China in Mandarin. Now, the people kind of laughed Whoa. at him because he had you know the, Ax- the American, American accent, accent on yeah. top of it. But at the same time, they applauded him for going through that effort and then doing the entire thing in their language instead of speaking English and have someone translate. Yeah. Hmm. So, you know, that kind of thing. Or he wanted to build a, as he called it, a simple artificial intelligence to run his house. Okay. Right. So they put out a video, and a lot of people were questioning whether he actually achieved what he's trying to say mm. in his house that can mm. actually do. Because it looked like there was some, you know, video wizardry happening to uh, kind of clean that up for him. <laughs> but as he likes to take on a personal challenge for 2017, he announced on Tuesday on his Facebook page that he set the personal challenge. Um, of learning new things and growing outside of his work. And his goal this time around is to have visited every state in the union by December 31st. My, wow. daughter, my daughters have 
visited every single state except yeah. Alaska. He hasn't. So he says to reach this milestone, he uh, he said he'll have to travel to around 30 states. He has 30 states left to visit. My, my mother can actually help him out with this because my mother was the one that did, did this for my daughter. She would take them in the RV for a month. Ooh. Mm. Yeah. It was very nice. He says, he, my hope for this challenge is to get out and talk to more people about how they're living, working, and thinking about the future. Over the course of his adventure, he will stop at places suggested by his Facebook followers and there's also going to be an interactive aspect where people in those areas can even join him and give him suggestions on where to go. He's going to run for president. Well, there's a political angle to this, mm. too. They feel that he's going to try to run for some office. So this is what you do when you're Supreme a billionaire. Court justice? You don't run for the Supreme Court, do you? you? <laughs> no, some you people try. but yes. When you're a billionaire, you've, you've got to find ways to fill the time and do something pretty interesting. He has a kid. Yeah. Come on. I've been to 20 states, and I'm not a billionaire. No, it's not hard to get to all those states. Anyway, we're going to take a break. Okay. When we come back, we're going to continue this discussion and uh, share another couple of stories with you that you might find interesting. This is the Matt Townsend Show. When we return, we'll have some more fun. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson here with Terry South and Sean O'Neill. We're filling in for Dr. Matt while he stepped out. You know, he is a doctor and he routinely needs to go save lives and marriages. And I. It's not lives, oh. marriages. Well, some would say that they're interchangeable. He would. Hmm. He tries to sell the importance of it. It's, it's a lot of the touchy feely sort of doctoring that happens. Speaking of flack. Of the, <clears throat> anyway. Wow. Wow. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> anyway, we uh, – have you ever parked somewhere and you haven't been able to get out? And I'm not talking about the snow, and Terry and I had this problem the other morning. It was a little difficult to get out because of the okay. snow being packed up against our cars. I purposely parked mm-hmm. so your car would shield me from any other cars in the parking lot. Oh, so. that was nice. <laughs> hey, by the way, I, I was out there with a shovel, and I yep. want you to know I did at least two shovels full of snow – Away from your car, so Thank that you, the, you could get the out other five easier. shovels were on your car. <laughs> it's all right. I got Come stuck. On. I got stuck in a very clear and shoveled parking lot the other day. So, well, here's fine. a guy that went to extreme measures to uh, get his park or his parked car out of a sticky situation. Hmm. Um, a Florida man was arrested after deputies said he allegedly received no. That's cold fries. We already did cold fries. Mm-hmm. That's also a sticky situation. Authorities say a New Hampshire man was arrested after he tried to move a parked ambulance that was blocking his car. Hmm. Matthew Duvall was charged Tuesday with disorderly conduct and unauthorized use of a vehicle, the AP reports. According to WMUR, firefighters and paramedics were inside a home helping a patient. They had unlocked the ambulance so firefighters could grab supplies. Authorities say the 40-year-old Duvall couldn't get his vehicle around the ambulance, so he got in it and tried to move the ambulance himself. Workers heard the backup beeping sound and called police. Whoa. 
Yeah, nobody misses that sound. No. Would you would you move an ambulance if it had the keys in it to uh, what if it was an no. emergency? What if your baby was being born? Well, there's an ambulance. But if you're if you're already you, right? if you're already <laughs> right there, yeah. But if you're already parked at the hospital, then you're probably in the hospital and the yeah. ambulance. You know, and it's I did, lack of patience. Yeah, is what it sounded. I like. did see a thing on TV though where they did this where they they waited for people to park in a handicap spot who did not have a, a handicap need for the handicap spot, mm-hmm. and then they pulled up a van with people in it in wheelchairs and. And who, who and they parked right behind the car that was in the spot, and they Good made for them. And, and but they did it as the people were coming out of the store. Good for them, and made these folks just feel so <laughs> so bad. Okay, now I, I just want to give people like this the benefit of a doubt. Maybe he it was metered, and he didn't have any more quarters, and he was out of time. He had to go meet with Trump. I'm sure. Right. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> Hmm. It's it's good to give people the benefit of a doubt. Is it? Maybe his wife was pregnant. It's not very cynical. Ran out of change. Maybe uh, maybe he's a superhero. Mm. No. No. No? No. No. He's probably just a guy who didn't want to wait. You say no like superheroes don't exist. They don't. There's... What about that guy in Seattle that kind of... Well, there's people that dress up, up and, and run around and try to be vigilantes, but there's also what about... people that... Daredevil. Yeah, he's he's just a guy. The blind crime fighter that it's can a, fight better than anyone I know. It's a TV show. It's a TV show. That I, I could have sworn it said based on a true story. Nope. Based on a comic book. Mm-hmm. But those are based in reality. Nope. Oh, of course. No. No. The reality of someone's mind who's drawing it. Right. <sighs> you guys are shattering my world right now. Oh, yeah. I Everything I thought I knew to be true. Not so true anymore. But he's really blind, like the actor that portrays. No, not at all. No, no, no. Wow. Yep. Anyway, let's uh, let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk to a couple of different gentlemen that hopefully will fill me with more optimism and and uh, help me to at least believe in something that's happier, even if it's not true. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Well, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, every day around this time, we like to head on over to our good friends at BYU Sports Nation to get a sneak peek of what's going on at their show coming up here in about 11 and a half minutes. I know they're excited. I'm always excited to speak with them. Spencer and Jerem, I'm hoping that you guys can can uh, fill me with optimism and hope because Sean and, and Terry over here are are shattering my world. Everything I thought I knew was true is no longer true. Why do you say that, Jeff? Wait, what did they do to you? Well, I've, I've been watching Daredevil lately, yep. okay. and it uh, turns out it's not based on a true story. Oh, my goodness. I'm so sorry. I told them there are superheroes that exist. There's that guy in Seattle, Phoenix something or other, that uh, fights crime, and uh, they didn't seem to think he was a superhero. Hmm. Do you know who I'm talking about? No. I have no idea what's happening. 
Oh, great. This is, well, this is going <laughs> fantastic so far. Your earth is shattering even more. <sighs> well, how about this? Uh, what, we've been talking a lot about food, and probably because I'm really hungry, but what is the most that you would consider spending on a pizza? Mm, if it's really good pizza, probably like 40 bucks. Really? Yeah. yeah. If it's at some place, some you're in some other city, and it's crazy awesome. The yeah. Environment and it's okay. A memory. Yeah, I had some amazing pizza in Miami at this little hole in the wall joint that you had to make a res- like a reservation a few days in advance for, and it was expensive and it was totally worth it. So you're you're more about the experience, and uh, you know if it's hole, you you know there's a saying if it's a hole in the wall, you know it's going to be good. Yeah, absolutely. If it's so, worth, I mean, if it's if the experience and the ambiance and the atmosphere and the food equals all that good experience, why not? There's a, a restaurant in, in New York that is selling a pizza for two thousand dollars. And who who will buy this pizza? Is my question. That is a good question. But I, what would you expect to be in a pizza that costs two thousand dollars? I don't know, gold flakes. <laughs> that's exactly right. In fact, that's one of the key ingredients. There's a uh, Caviar scooped from the Caspian Sea. Gross. I mean, I understand that that's exotic, but that why caviar on your pizza? What What have you got against the Caspian Sea? I have nothing against the Caspian Sea. <laughs> it's exotic. It's just the idea of caviar. Like, why not enjoy caviar aside from pizza? Why do you have to put it on pizza? Yes. White Stilton cheese flown <laughs> in from England. <laughs> okay. I don't even know Stilton from Gouda, but, you know, that's just me. Does it taste yeah. good? That's all I want to know. Um, no word on that yet. But, you know, speaking of having to make a reservation well in advance, you've got to order it 48 hours in advance. Is there that much of a demand? Apparently, you know, I mean, you guys know how these these uh, rich folk think. The two of you can identify with that, yeah. right? Uh-huh, yeah. I want to get involved with these business planners and the people that can make this come to fruition, that can actually convince others to buy this and then make a load of money off of it. What are they doing? See if you can pull some strings and get this, uh, you know, we want this served at, uh, when we go to the Cougars games. Can you I make want it happen? Cougar tails with gold. And then... <laughs> yeah, a gold cougar tail. Hawaii's st- a Power Five program. They'll have gold in there. A gold cougar tail for a mere five hundred dollars. I'm still waiting for the bacon covered cougar tail, and that's just as gold. That's good as good as gold when I'm as I'm concerned. So yeah, I've had the maple anyway. donut with bacon on it. It's pretty good. Anyway, I'm sure you're not going to be talking about maple bars and and two thousand dollar <laughs> pizza on your program. What are you going to be talking about? Well, I don't know. Maybe that's, we'll see where that's it goes. tempting, right? I mean, you you have you struck a chord with me for sure, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> there was no sarcasm in that response whatsoever. <laughs> wow, you're getting to know me more and more, aren't you? <laughs> Very good. Very good. Uh, today on the show. Tonight is kind of like a midterm final for BYU men's basketball. The Cougars are essentially at the halfway point of their season, and they will face their biggest test of the season in top 20 ranked St. Mary's. The Gales are number 19. BYU is a heavy underdog. So we're asking BYU Sports Nation to take off the blue goggles, perhaps, or leave them on if they want to, and tell us what they expect in Moraga tonight. Hmm. And I assume you're not going to tell us until 
about seven minutes from now. Well, that would defeat the purpose of yes. teasing the show, wouldn't it? So we need to get our uh, our hats turned inside out and what other superstitious things do Cougar fans do? Oh, ask the baseball team. They're full of them. <laughs> Seriously. Superstition for days. Yes. Okay, so we've got that coming up. Steve Cleveland, live from uh, Moraga. He's on the BYU radio call tonight. He'll uh, preview the matchup. Tell us how BYU pulls off the upset because St. Mary's number 19 in the country. Vegas has uh, BYU as a 10.5 point underdog tonight. Uh, Ken Palm and ESPN's Basketball Power Index both give BYU less than 20% chance to win. So how does BYU pull off the victory? Plus our going for two picks. We make two predictions about the game. Okay, so there's two of them, but you're going to give us at least one of them, right? Because then you still have the T's. Is, nope, is that nope, not how not it works? No, we're not going to do that either. Wow. I'll tell you this much. Jerem wow. has erased a huge deficit in that competition between the two of us. And Unlike trails the U.S. By only government. One. He trails by only one, Jeff. <laughs> wow. So yeah. that's pretty close. All right. So I see how it is. You're just going to save the best for your show. That makes sense, though. But uh, we just <laughs> we just love hearing your voice. Which voice do you like to hear? Ooh. Well, I I don't know what to think of Jerem's impression of me. I'm not even sure where he got it. My name is Jeff. It's a it sounds like Borat. That, yeah, yeah. That, that was that was a movie quote. What's Chan- it from? Twenty one. Ch- Channing Jump Tatum. Uh, yeah, I think on Twenty One Jump Street. Twenty two Jump, Jump Street. Street. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, get to work on that impression. See if you can brush it up a little bit and. Uh, Hopefully, Dr. Matt will be back tomorrow to speak with you guys. I'm pretty sure. He was here earlier, but then uh, he ducked out for some reason to fight crime, I believe it was. Thanks for taking over, man. (laughs) All right. We'll have a great show. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks. Sounded like he was gearing up to do another impression of me there. Oh, wow. Sean, are you superstitious at all? No. So there's nothing that you're willing to adopt to help the Cougars' chances of winning. Oh, well, when it comes to sports, that's different. Oh, I see. All I right. Ha- I have been known to to do stupid things while watching sports to kind of egg the team on. My, my kids think I'm yelling at the TV so the players will hear them, hear me, <laughs> but no. I'm just yelling because I'm getting frustrations out. So it's difficult for me to not be in the mindset of, well, usually I don't watch the Dodgers games. And they win. So if I don't I've watch done, it, I've if I go that. out of the room, they're going to get a home run. This is why I watch the Dodgers games, is so they will lose. Oh. Hmm. I'm a Giants fan. You learn something new every day, and mm-hmm. sometimes it upsets you. But, uh, you know, this show, uh, a big theme that we have on the show is forgiveness. And, and I can I'm, forgive you for I rooting for the Dodgers. I can learn to forgive you, Sean. For rooting for a team that has a much better record than my Dodgers. Well, no, the Dodgers won the West last year. Yes, but as far as World Series... Recently. Yes. Dodgers haven't been to the World Series since 88, I believe. Yeah, but I bet the Dodgers have won more World Series than the Giants have. Really? I wouldn't be surprised. Hmm. Because the Giants have only won five, I believe. Another thing that we like to talk about on the show is we all make mistakes, and we can learn from those mistakes and become better people and make the world a better place as a result. Mm -hmm. So, Sean, just my two cents for you there. Well, (laughs) but I guess it goes both ways. I'll make sure I get you some black and orange. Uh, (laughs) Only around Halloween. 
Anyway, we've talked a lot about pizza today, and our hero story of the day, believe it or not, also has to do with pizza. Great guy, and he is our hero. For a long time, uh, um, let me make sure I have the right hero story here for a second. Uh, there's a Pennsylvania man who won a competition from a pizzeria, and he is now uh, a hero to many other people around him. Josh Catrick had just walked out of his eighth round of chemotherapy when good fortune struck. He had just won a competition, free pizza for a year, from a neighborhood restaurant in Pennsylvania. But instead of seizing the opportunity to spend the better part of 2017 gorging on the well-deserved melted mozzarella wellspring... Catrick, who has colon cancer, decided other people needed it more. So he gave every slice away. The local Northampton Food Bank is the recipient of his generosity. You know the saying, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Well, when life gives you pizza, give away a slice, the 36-year-old told CNN Sunday. But after Catrick's act of holiday kindness, the pizza restaurant about 65 miles north of Philadelphia decided to extend its own. The restaurant is doubling the prize to make sure Catrick gets his share of pizza along with the food bank. Catrick said he was inspired to pay it forward because of the generosity he had received from others during his cancer treatment. After everything I went through these last few months, I met so many people and have been receiving so much. I felt I wanted to give back, Catrick said. The food bank, they're very thankful. Uh, They're very thankful for the pizza. They're amazed by it. They will put it to good use. And his generosity doesn't end there. Josh, still reluctant to indulge in all the pizza coming his way, told CNN, Maybe I'll share with my friends on Facebook and make a contest of my own to see if anyone would like some pizza. So, great guy, and he is our hero of the day, Josh Catrick, who won a year supply of pizza and immediately gave it to a food bank. Wow. So generous. And, uh... You know, even somebody coming from somebody who has had a tough time of life recently himself. Anyway, look for those opportunities yourself to to give and to be a hero in your own special way. We'll be back tomorrow with Dr. Matt to wrap up the show for the week. That is the Matt Townsend Show for today. We'll talk tomorrow.